and welcome to Deus Life, an aspirational podcast. I am Patrick, and here with me, as always, is Hayden. And today we have a very special guest. We have a doctor in the house. Woo! How's it going, y'all? Josh, welcome to the show. We're very excited to have you. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. As you know, we had Brad on, uh, Dr. Brad Reynolds, about six episodes ago, and uh, he is a neuropsychologist. And what we want to do is set up a, a situation where you conflict with him heavily, and then you guys can fight. Mm-hmm. That'll mm-hmm. be the next episode. That'll be the round table that we'll have in around August or September. Okay. Okay. Well, it should be easy because I'm a psychiatrist uh-huh. and you know, psychiatrist for psychologists. There's enemies. obviously mortal enemies. Way, there are a lot of differences. Yeah. Everyone knows. Obviously, I noticed Brad didn't have a prescription pad. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a reason for that? Uh, well, hmm, I don't know. I guess so. Let's a baseline. Psychiatrist. What's the difference yeah, between a psychiatrist and a psychiatrist? Psychiatrist has an MD, which okay. means you know medical Medi- doctor. Yep. You have to go through medical school, so you know generally four years, mm-hmm. and then they have to do a four-year residency after that. So you're you're going through the it's full a lot so of training. So you're going through the full same medical experience, medical school experience as a surgeon or an OBGYN or something like that. Absolutely. And then there's some specialization, I'm sure, along the way. And then once you get to residency, is it the same thing? Like you're you did an ER rotation and you did an ICU rotation and all of those things. So every psychiatry residency is a little different in how they do it, but generally yes. So this first year, I'm at USC, mm-hmm. uh, University of Southern California. And so six months of my year uh, were non-psychiatry things. So hospital medicine, hospital pediatrics, hospital neurology. They want to, want you to get a mix. How yeah. do you feel about that? Because I feel like that education system ultimately produces the best doctors. Like I think there's a reason the U.S. has the most qualified doctors. I have a cousin in Ireland who went to school out of high school for four years and he became an MD, right, by Irish mm-hmm. standards. I'm going to trust you way more, but also this is also a system that's much more prohibitive because of the cost and the time and the overwhelmingly more uh, of a commitment. How do you feel about that? Right. So and has that opinion changed now that you're near the end of it? <laughs> so that's a barrier thing, to right? entry for competition. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Mixed feelings, right? Yeah. So I guess, first off, I think most other countries in the world, you don't have to do this bachelor's degree before going into medical school. It's usually a thing where it's like out of high school, you get into like medical, medical university, college. And for most places it's six years starting right after high school. Um, whereas in America generally you have to have a bachelor's degree. So it's four years of pretty much non-medical things. And then you start medical school. Which, honestly, looking back on it, I mean, I loved my college experience, but yeah. was it necessary? Was all of that necessary for me to be a and doctor? The cost. You know, exactly. Yeah. Probably, exactly. And there was, I wouldn't be surprised. One of the things that I found, I studied business in undergrad and I sat in on a couple of graduate level business classes and I found that, unfortunately, largely, at least in the business setting, it was a repackaging of a lot of the same concepts. Mm. And I found that I, I wouldn't have found that many new sort of groundbreaking insights other than a repackaging or adding a syllable to some of the terms. Um, so is that some of the similarities where you, you, some of the biology that you learn about in undergrad, you wind up getting re-exposed to during your med school track or physio or what was that like? I'd say that is one nice thing about medical school is that most of the things that I've been exposed or that I was exposed to, I wouldn't say that I knew anything about oh, from undergrad. Okay. Hmm. I, I think the more frustrating thing is all of these things you learn about in undergrad. It's like, well, why exactly... Do I have to take three physics classes or why am I taking 
linear algebra right now. Like well, the scalpel how much follows math Newtonian I, physics. How much math have I done outside of like it's, multiplication? It's because, yeah. a, Not much. it's because a bureaucrat decided that that's what a well-rounded education is, which yeah. is why I had to take philosophy classes while I was studying businesses and I had to take East Asian societies because it was in the category one general education bucket. Yeah. Mm, yeah. It's also um, the professions, you know, getting a monopoly over licensing and, uh, yeah. you know, happens. You know. And so I've, it's I've, as much a racket as any other I've, educational I've, institution. Create a high barrier to entry. I've, yeah. I've heard that the uh, the application process for med school itself is one of the most shitty sort of just miserable experiences possible. I mean, there's secondary applications and you have to rewrite the same. They, they ask the same question and one one application will be, hey, in 500 words, talk about why you want to be a doctor. And then the other one's in 250 words, right? Why you want to be a doctor. And then there's very expensive applications. You got to take MCATs. There's MCAT studying classes. You spend it's almost a full time job. And I know a lot of people will take a full year off just so that they can spend that time then applying to med school. What was that experience like for you? Yeah. So, I mean, kind of like I was saying earlier, you know, I think the whole point is they want to create a high barrier to entry, you know, kind of weed out the people who aren't as dedicated to it, you know, because it's four years of difficult school. And then I have four years of residency. Some people are going to have seven, eight, nine, (laughs) ten years after medical school of training. It takes a lot of dedication. Which specializations have seven, eight, nine, ten years? If you want to do anything neurosurgery, um, general surgery, but then specialize. So if you want to do like heart surgery, lung surgery, I have a friend who wants to be a fetal surgeon, which is crazy. Ooh. It's Whoa. like you you can literally do surgery on, They're you so know, fragile though. fetuses in the womb, which is insane to me to even just wow. fathom. And but that's what the robot arms? Arth- arthroscopically exactly. or, or robot uh, arms? Robot arms. I think it depends a lot of the time. Hmm. Yeah, there are different techniques, but yeah. Yeah, usually. Yeah. Or does he just have uh, minimally invasive a lot of the time? I don't think it's that. Um, <laughs> he walked into med school with tiny hands, and they're <laughs> like, "Yo, you, you're the guy. Come with us. You're we have a specialty guy. for you." Okay. <laughs> yeah. And so, the, and so you went through med school, and you're in your first year of residency. And tell us about some of the things that you've seen in your first year. What are you excited about? What sort of the future hold for you over the rest of the course of your residency? Yeah. So I guess this first year was an interesting year. A lot of um ups and downs. Uh, but I would say moving to LA for the first time, you know, you hear about, or at least, so I, my entire family is generally from Kansas Mm -hmm. where, you know, they have very specific views about places, uh, like California, all those, all those left wingers. I I had somebody (laughs) say that to me. They were from Oklahoma and we were having a conversation. He said, Oh, well you're a coastal elite. I was like, thank you. You know what elite means, right? (laughs) So then they look for these reasons, you know, to, you know, be able Mm -hmm. to call out California for being Mm -hmm. shitty. And and reinforce your own place in the world and your decisions and where you are. Exactly. Exactly. As everyone does. As everyone does. Um, but yeah, homelessness was all I was being told about or all, all my family was asking me about, you know, and, um, I would say, so I, I met the County hospital, one of the main social safety net County hospitals in LA. And I would say the most striking thing to me is just, I mean, you hear about how widespread homelessness and a lot of these like chronic social issues are drug addiction and you're just, God, it feels like every other person you see in these hospitals is has some sort of thing going on like that homelessness, meth addiction, mental illness, all three of them combined. 
and it, you know, it kind of gives you a, a good perspective, I think, in that, like, it's it hard to ever complain about my position. So, you know, there are times when you have to work really hard in residency. There are times when I was working, I don't know, six twelves uh, every week that's for like six, weeks tw- on that's six 12 hour days. That yeah, seems yeah, so <laughs> counterproductive, like in a, in a, in a field that should value health like that. Well, aren't, aren't, <laughs> aren't, 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 aren't doctors in residency one of the most chronically like underslept cohorts yeah. of professionals? Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, we're, we're a field that values health and we want to make people healthy. Now what you got to do when you come in here, you're not going to sleep. You're going to eat shit. You're you going to have time f- to exercise. You're going to work 40 <laughs> hours straight. You're never going to see the sun. I, yeah. I mean, it's, it's an outrageous well, part thing. Of the, part of the problem with that is I read or listened to a, somebody, a sleep expert saying that the initial person who created sort of the residency program was a doctor in Johns Hopkins. In a fucking the, vampire. The early 1900s, mm-hmm. and he was also hopelessly addicted to cocaine at the time. <laughs> yeah, and he used that to then set the standards and sort of out tough his residents, mm-hmm. and that sort of set the standard for working 48 hour shifts, working 40 hour shifts, because this dude who was a pioneer in creating like modern medicine, there was like some four yeah. ho- mm-hmm. four horsemen of modern medicine or something like that, and there was a guy at Johns Hopkins who created basically the whole That's residency yeah. programs, and it was because of. Hashtag shout out to cocaine for that. Yeah. And, and uh, at yeah. that time of, of uh, human history, it was probably like good, pure cocaine. So good for him. It really worked for him effectively. I will uh, not comment on I that. Mean, I mean, no it's idea. exactly right. It was actually this guy named Halstead. There's oh, actually shoot, a really yeah. good TV show about it called The Nick. Oh, I yeah. Oh, yeah. that's him? It's, okay. that, that's, it's based on him. Is yeah. that Clive Owen? Yes, Clive Owen. He yeah. looked just like Clive yes, Owen. Right? He's yes, injecting the cocaine between his toes. You have no track marks. Yeah. Wow. That first scene of that movie or that TV show is something. He dies on the operating table in this right. operating theater, and it was a very bloody affair. Goodness gracious! Damn. Shout out to the Nick K K N I C K. Now the I, Nick. I, we don't want to give you a reputation as a narc, but <laughs> <laughs> is that still prevalent? Is there still a lot of uppers being used? I would imagine it's required. And of course, everybody's going to drink caffeine and smoke cigarettes. Uh, are there cigarettes? Uh. I was actually surprised to see more cigarettes than I, you know, yeah. you, you would expect zero, <laughs> yeah. honestly. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess some of my, I've, I've seen some older school attendings, uh, yeah. you know, come back off smoke breaks and things. Yeah. Um, old habits die hard. Wow. And then is Adderall usage fairly prevalent? So I would say people are generally not very open about it. It's not like, I don't know how it was for at your guys' university, your, your colleges. I but feel like I four think people out of five very, people I went to college with mm-hmm. weren't using Adderall. And people are very open about it. Yeah. You know. yeah it's, 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 it's the open secret. Everybody sort of wink, wink about it. Oh, my mm-hmm. study aids, that's what people would call them. Right. So. You know, performance enhancing drugs, you know. Yep. I've mentioned that on Brad's that I have an extensive history trying to use <laughs> just about <laughs> every ADHD pill known to man right. to gain some sort of advantage. Patrick is a, a deep study mm-hmm. of uh, trying to find I ways tried i couldn't find a way to do it but i lied a little bit on that podcast because i said it was all willpower that made me quit i actually quit because i told a psych that i smoked weed and she was like oh you're gonna need to go to this weekend thing to get your script now and i was like nah fuck (laughs) interesting and i showed up for about 10 minutes and i was just surrounded by weak people and we're like you're gonna get my pills (laughs) and i was like i am not one of you right (laughs) that was righteous indignation that got you off like the whole world is on these pills now now i'm not gonna be you know what i don't like them anymore (laughs) right so adderall's fairly common i mean i I would say in medical school i think it was understood that there were people using i wouldn't say a majority um Mm. and then in the hospital itself uh, once again it's people aren't very open about it but i have heard about it especially you know, imagine you 
are doing surgery and some of these operations can take six, eight, 10 hours, just one operation. And, you know, maybe they'll let you scrub out and go use the restroom halfway through. Maybe not. But if you need intense concentration for the entirety of that time Mm. and you got called at 2 a.m. to go do this emergently, you could see how like it could be. I kind of want like, you know, if my doctor needs to have some Vyvanse in order to yeah. be focused at that would 4 be the correct choice. you know, like I'm yeah. also cool Vyvanse that, is you know? low key the best one. Too. So he's yeah. also going to be really happy about doing the surgery. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, I, I couldn't give you numbers on how prevalent it is. It's just my understanding that there is there is some of that. I would on. I would I would and, think you're correct. Yeah. yeah. And then situationally, I feel like there are I mean. To, to your point, if somebody's coming off back to back long surgeries and they're expecting to be able to sleep for 15 hours and they get called into another emergency surgery, there's a world where if I'm the patient or I'm the patient's family, I might want that doctor in that moment to take something that will help keep them engaged, attentive on their on their on their game. Right. So right. it's interesting, the, the notion there. So I, I want to back up a little bit because I you can tell me if I'm wrong here. I think the number one requirement to become a medical doctor is to have an overwhelming urge to become a medical doctor. <laughs> it's sort of like the number one requirement for running for presidency is you have to be insane enough to want to be president. Yeah, or right? a Navy SEAL. You have to, is it yeah. something that you wanted for a while? Actually, quick, or, yeah, do you know sorry, what the I, number I, one I hijacked indicator? your question. I'm so sorry, Patrick. No, 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 please, the, please do you know what the them. number one indicator of whether somebody's going to make it through BUDS is, which is the Navy SEAL training? Probably pain tolerance or how long they've been telling themselves they're going to be a SEAL. Visible tattoos. No Visible way. tattoos. Mm. Yeah. Fewer, it implies they don't have a backup that. plan. Fewer or more? Yeah. No, more. more. More visible tattoos. Wow. Like, if you have, if, if, if Takashi69 no goes to Bud's training, Dude, he's, he's, he's going to pass. Sure, all yeah. the way through. Wow. Because yeah. so that guy you, literally can't get hired anywhere where did, where did that come from? <laughs> I saw it. It was just like a correlational study. They couldn't find any other thing that correlated with Bud's success. Wow. Other than visible, visible tattoos. tattoos. So that's how committed yeah. you are. And yeah, because wow. I guess if you're going to be a rapper and you're going to get a tattoo on your face, you're like you better make it. Not going to be a CPA necessarily. <laughs> yeah. You can go be a rapper or a UFC fighter and that's kind of it. Or an inmate. Yeah. yeah. Or an inmate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lots of good options there. Well, let's 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 go back to the question, and that was a good side tangent. Um, when did you know you wanted to be a doctor? Were there any times when you really doubted it? Um, and at what point? Uh, I guess just just talk about that a little bit, and then tell yeah. me if you see people that went up and came through the ranks with you that probably shouldn't have gone, that maybe went because they didn't have any other plan. I guess. Yeah, yeah. So it's a hard I guess, path to fall if you don't have a plan. Though. Yeah, but I feel like a lot of people do that. Yeah, just I guess for I guess for my own story. Um, you know, I think if you have an Asian mother in America, <laughs> then you automatically undergo some, you know, doctor. inception, like doctor. you're going to be doctor a doctor, right? or like doctor speak, whispering into my wind, <laughs> yeah. my, my ear as like uh-huh. an infant, like you're going to be a doctor, yeah. doctor, doctor. Wow. <laughs> and it, yeah, no, I mean, there's a, this little recording. I, I don't know if you've ever seen um, one of those like picture frames where you can like press a button and it like plays out a recording. Yeah. And, uh-huh. My dad made me record one. We were giving this picture of me as like a five-year-old to my mom. And it was like, I'm going to go to Stanford on a soccer scholarship <laughs> and become a doctor. No. And you so did most like, of that. Make I, your mom you know, happy. I Tell her what failed on the soccer part. But, you know, the inception, yeah. you know, <laughs> I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. Like how much of my life has been my own volition versus just living out the, you this know, pro- these incepted ideas. We'll get deeper into that later. Yeah. Continue yeah. Now. And I think that um, I, I've certainly questioned it Um through the years, but it was always in the back of my mind. Like, I don't know. Uh, success was 
honestly, an MD being a doctor equated with success. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, I had this, you know, sort of, you know, rosy conception of like, you know, like them being heroes, you know, you want to save the sick person, save the person that's being hurt. Um, And it was as simple as that. And just going through high school, going through college, I was lucky that it ended up working out for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I think medicine is wrong for a lot of people. It takes the right personality. I mean, look at me, like I'm currently 27. I'm going to be forced to be in training for at least three more years. You know, mm-hmm. like you are buying into this long, that's a, you're signing up for a you're long, all in. A long a, track. It's a decade plus. Exactly. At the very least. And because of the debt you build up, you can't change your mind. Exactly. Like that, that's exactly. Yeah. I contemplated med school and that was the number one reason it was like, and I was just reading some forums like, yo, if you want to do anything else, do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, the, I think your average, I, I forgot what the current average debt burden is. It's something ridiculous. It's like 200 grand. Oh it's, like, it's definitely more than 100 grand. We need more doctors. We need to make it easier for doctors. I, I also, yeah. you probably have a lot more recent experience with this having gone through the med school application process. I was blown away when a friend of mine was applying and I said, when's the last time that a new med school came online? <laughs> and it had been decades. Welcome to the Caribbean. There was like there was like one med school that was like going through some insane long accreditation process mm-hmm. in like West Texas, and that was going to be the only one that was coming online in the last twenty years yeah. or something like right. that. And then I said, "How many people apply for med school? How many people get in?" And she said, "A hundred thousand people apply every year, and that only twenty thousand people get in." which to me speaks of a problem at the med school level where they're either not increasing capacity or it's too difficult to become an accredited med school or there are not enough teaching hospitals out there that can then attach a med school to it to then increase the number of doctors because we have a severe and crippling doctor shortage. Right. There are primary care deserts all over this country where there's just hundreds of miles, where you would have to drive hundreds of miles to even reach a doctor so that you can go, go get yourself seen. Mm-hmm. Here's a problem though, I could be wrong, but just basic economics, you, you kind of want there to be a shortage of, of doctors, right? You're going to get paid a lot more as a doctor. If you had a surplus of doctors, on, it depends it depends on, it's depends not going to account is. for the cost it takes to become a doctor, right? I guess. There's, there's plenty of demand for doctor services. and It, I kinda, w- it speaks to the problem of intertwining economics and medicine, well, I it's, guess. It's economics and medicine. Yeah, so anyway, we're, yeah. we're, we're talking a lot. I mean, there's a few <laughs> different bottleneck points, um, but I think uh, probably the main one that I don't think, I, I wasn't aware of until mm-hmm. I got into medicine is um, I think one of the main bottleneck points is actually the number of residency spots. It's not even necessarily mm. the number of med schools. What's crazy in this country is you can go all the way through medical school Shit. and then not you get can, matched. Anymore. And not get matched. Shit, I think there's like five percent. I think Fuck something like five to seven percent. Don't put me on those numbers, but MD of graduates. MD graduates don't match wow. each year. So, and with just just that MD, you're not allowed. I think there might be one state. I think in Missouri you may be able to practice kind of at the level of like a mid-level of like, you know, kind of like a physician assistant. Or an NP or something Um, Exactly, exactly. Um, But in most places, I mean... Did you know any people? So I knew a few people... it's like the on, big on match day. They just like yeah. it was so, like on, it was like Valentine's Day in elementary school. Right. You draft you, day, you, you, they you, got you, their family you, behind you, them. Yeah, and they're you, waiting for the phone, and you don't get a Valentine from everybody. Oh, I mean, it, it literally is so. So match day every year, I think, takes place on a Friday, and match day is when every uh, medical graduate who's you know applied to 
try to get into a residency, here's which residency they're going to go to. Everyone here is pretty much like at the same time across America. And Monday of that week, you receive an email that just says whether or not you matched. Oh, so, so that's the binary gate of whether or not Friday is yes, going to be a good exactly, day. Exactly. Exactly. So you can and get your heart broken on Monday and it doesn't even, oh my God. Right. I and mean, this is, I was watching a really bad horror movie a couple nights ago called Countdown. And it was like, you know, it tells you when you're going to die and then the demon comes and kills you. But it's not enough to just kill you. It torments you for a week before. That, this uh-huh. kind of feels like that. Like yeah. instead of, you know, just telling so you. Find you, out on, yeah, so you find, you find out, out, on out and then you got to watch everybody's joy. And if you're one of the people that doesn't have it, do you still show up to match day and pretend like you're going to open your envelope and there'll be a school on there? I mean, so what ends up happening for people is if you hear that you don't match that Monday, then you enter this week-long horror show called The Soap, The Supplemental Something Something, oh, where no, no. every program that didn't match, um, that doesn't have like every spot filled, can you know then you can try to get one of those consolation lottery almost exactly the consolation lottery and so you maybe can get a spot often not in the original specialty that you Mm -hmm. hoped for you know so you could spend four years of medical school thinking you're going to be an orthopedic surgeon i'm going to do bones i want to do sports replacement don't match and then you end up doing family medicine and then you are set up for a lifetime of that and I think that wow. can be one of the things that causes a lot of dissatisfaction among um, physicians is so how, it's really easy to not yeah. even end up in the field that you want yeah. to end up in. So how is that? How is it that there aren't enough residency spots? Is that because mm-hmm. hospitals are shrinking? Is it they're downsizing? They're trying to optimize? Is it that there aren't the right incentives from the government to say, hey, you need to in your hospitals, ac- hospitals across the board. You need to increase your residency spots by five percent so that we can get more doctors out. So it's that what I wasn't aware job, of. Aiden. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's like pretty much that. I didn't realize that residency spots come straight out of graduate medical education funding, which is federally mm. funded, I believe, as a part of Medicare. Um, but so in order to be a Medicare certified facility, you have to have at least 30 residency spots or 100 okay. residency spots. Or Basically, whatever. just to get more residency spots, the federal government has to pass a bill raising that funding and so you're kind of waiting on our current state you know when you think about the current state of our government you know we're waiting on them to increase the number uh, (laughs) to increase the funding and so that's kind of why you get um you mentioned nurse practitioners earlier physician assistants kind of this they call the mid-levels and why that you're seeing a big boom yeah, you're seeing a big boom in that across America and because it's kind of easier to open up nurse practitioner online programs, for example, get them certified to do, you know, basic primary care. It's easier to do that than to just have all of a sudden increase the number of residency programs. I remember hearing somebody talking about that's part of the reason why I heard about the primary care deserts. And one of the fixes that they recommended was increasing the prescribing powers of nurse Mm -hmm. practitioners so that they can get near to the level of a full MD but I also know that there are very important distinctions at every single level of the game. I took an uh, I took an EMT basic life support course when I was in college, and I was blown away by how much specific programming there was 
between what you could and couldn't administer as far as drugs. And there was certain situations where the only thing that I could even ever administer was if somebody was having a heart attack or a chest issue and they had their own nitro mm-hmm. and they met certain other criteria, that was the only thing. And then if you once you get to advanced life support, so your paramedics fire, if you ever talk to an EMT, you can ask them if they're BLS, basic life support, or ALS, advanced life support. The ALS, they can administer epinephrine if somebody's having a uh, an allergic reaction. And then you go up the chain and there's very clear delineations at every single step of the way in terms of what you can prescribe, what powers you do and don't have. And so is it a fix where with PAs and NPs and other, other situations where it's expanding that or what's your, what's the fix? So it's interesting. It's a pretty touchy subject, especially among physicians right now is, um, you know, quote unquote, mid-level creep. Um, that's, that's one of there's an industry term, industry term. (laughs) Um, and so depending on the physician you speak to, loves industry terms. I'm all about the lingo, man. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) Depending on who you're talking to, people have like, you know, there's a, a vast spectrum of different feelings on this. Um, I think the political answer is that nurse practitioners, physician assistants, all mid levels, they all have, you know, very important roles and very important skills that they can bring to the table that are different from each other, different than nurses, different than physicians. And I think the concern amongst physicians, um, I think from a patient safety standpoint, is the issue of the amount of training. Uh, there's just such a huge disparity of training um, mm-hmm. if you have an MD versus getting an NP. Uh, nurse practitioner yeah. degree. Um, there are so many, like I said earlier, online programs where, you know, two years. And if you're in a state that allows independent practice, for example, then you could just go set up shop, start prescribing things. Now, that's two years, and how many hours of that ends up even being patient care? Yeah. You know, often less than a thousand, some even less than five hundred. Um, whereas if you compare that to, you know, MDs, we already spoke about it, four years of training and you get the MD and you can't even do anything unless you do a residency, which the shortest residency you can do is three years. So what program is that? That's family medicine, the shortest possible and internal medicine, Mm -hmm. both three years. Um, so that's the thing is I do think that mid-levels, um, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, yes, I think expanding you know they they can help fill this like very important gap Mm -hmm. uh, that we have especially in primary care um now we have to be intelligent about the way that we go about doing that um i don't necessarily think that having them have independent practice is necessarily you know the best the best way to go about that Mm -hmm. okay yeah that makes total sense so transitioning back to psychiatry Mm -hmm. um I'm curious what your initial exposure was to that in med school. Was it part of the general curriculum or once you start getting specialized access to patient care? And then as you go through your residency, I'm curious, what's the path of a modern psychiatrist? I know the kids that I went to high school with, they would say their dad's a psychiatrist and I didn't know shit about shit. And so I went, oh, cool. It's a kind of doctor, I guess. And it's, but I didn't know what the difference between a psychiatrist, a psychotherapist, a psychologist is in terms of. Now I know that psychiatrists have prescribing powers. I learned that. I was today years old. And, um, and so I'm curious what the path is, how, that, uh, how the information you get exposed to, what sort of your, where, you, where you go from here. Right. Um, so 
for myself, I actually had no idea I wanted to be a psychiatrist until I was on my psychiatry rotation in medical school. Oh, wow. Okay. So most medical schools, the oh, first wait, half. Real, real quickly. Yes. What did you have a cadaver and what was your cadaver name? <laughs> No name. You didn't name De your cadaver? No name. What the fuck, definitely, man? Definitely had Josh a cadaver. Josh couldn't cut into a friend. <laughs> <laughs> and was it was it a guy or a girl? And what was the approximate age? Ours or was the... a guy, um, probably 50s. 50s, yeah, all 50s, right. Yeah, yeah, my friend had his, his cadaver was named Gertrude. She was about 80, 80, <laughs> 85 years old. And then he took her heart out of her body. Yeah, I mean, it's the weirdest anatomy lab. It's its own. That's its own discussion. It's the weirdest thing. Okay, um, but anyway, back to psychiatry. Yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, no, it's okay. No, I want to get through this. The uh, Let's get through the psychiatry stuff. And then I'm going to yeah. ask you a really weird question. Yeah. But we'll I want to make sure everybody has a basic understanding of this yes, path. Please. Yeah, yeah, we'll do that. Um, so for myself... Um, First two years of medical school are mostly book work. Then the second two years, you rotate generally through a pretty fixed curriculum of core rotations. So your bread and butter, internal medicine, mm -hmm. surgery, psychiatry is one of those. So we, everybody has to do psychiatry. Everyone has to okay. do at least really? some okay. psychiatry. Um, so for myself, what that looked like was doing a month at the Veterans Hospital in Houston mm -hmm. um, and then a month in the psychiatric emergency room in our county hospital there. And so really for me, it was just, especially at the Veterans Hospital, my job was basically to, we, I was on the consult service. And so that's like a patient is here for a heart problem, but they tell their doctor like, Oh, I'm suicidal. They call the psychiatry consult service in the hospital to go and, you know, give Assessor, them recommendations yeah. about the mm. psychiatric issues, whatever, whatever's going on. So it could be a patient with schizophrenia who's here for, you know, pneumonia. Can we mm. give them their medications? Yeah. And so I'm going in every day and I'm having these conversations with these veterans. Um, you know, a lot of the ones that I were seeing, you know, have, PTSD, alcoholism, you, a lot for most of them, it was from the Vietnam war and you're talking, I was going to ask what age. Yeah. Yeah. Most Vietnam war age. And so you're talking to these people and you realize like, holy shit. Like you can I, curse. This is a podcast. Yeah. Like, Fucking holy get it shit. Out there. Like yeah. I haven't, like, I can't even imagine like yeah. this, this guy is telling me, literally telling me vividly about how he would have to walk in single line, they would go out on these sort of, you know, exploratory excursions and they'd be in the dead of night and he yeah. would walk in this single line with like hundreds of soldiers, like as quietly as they so can through the jungle. Mine, step on mines. So you don't step on mines. So you don't like there are Viet Cong very near them. So it, there it really just is a constant hell. fear. Like it's an invented hell. See so your friends, yeah. see so your, yeah. friend, so your friends dying. I exactly. Mean, that's, that sounds like, the only yeah. way you could have made the Vietnam war worse is if it all happened underwater and you can't yeah. breathe. Yeah. It's yeah. like you surprise gunfire, you know, breaks out. And yeah. the next thing you know, like they're calling napalm down. And yeah. I, I've heard versions of that story many different times. And you can like see how these sort of, you know, traumatic events are seared. It almost, it seems like it's like seared into like the back of their like eyelids, you know, and they, the amount of stress and, you know, just emotional anguish, even what is it? four decades later that they experience it's horrible. So, so it started with feeling compassion for that situation, yeah. but then also seeing, you know, the power that a single conversation 
uh, especially, you know, this is in general in life. I think a single conversation can have so much power just for anyone. Um, but especially in psychiatry, I think, um, the being able to have a cathartic conversation was one of the things I loved the most about it. Mm. And I loved like, you know, I had just done multiple rotations. I, I was actually coming off of my surgery rotation when I went into psychiatry. And I, I had thought possibly that I wanted to do surgery for a while. I mean, it just sounds sexy. Yeah. I think everyone goes I'm through a, a period surgeon. where it's like, oh, I'm a surgeon. You watch an episode of Nip Tuck and you're like, that looks like a nice life. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I considered doing orthopedic surgery, bone surgery, you know, just because being a sports doctor sounded really sexy to me yeah. at the time. And so you go watch one of these sports guys, medicine, and, baby, you know, one of my attendings in medical school, she was a joints specialist. And so she did knee replacements and hip replacements. That's it. Mm-hmm. She did maybe, you know, so you get really four, fucking good at it. four hip yeah. replacements a week and like seemed like 10 knee replacements a week. She called herself the McDonald's of knees. And so, (laughs) and so it's, it's almost like you're breaking down, you know, this human, this very complex human with, you know, you can have so much depth and you're breaking it down into almost like, you know, a car, like we're all your specialists. Exactly. Like (laughs) we're all, we're all going to specialize in a specific part and I'm just going to get really good at this one thing, which is really great for high quality outcomes for efficiency sake. But you know, for myself, You want some that, more variety. Yeah. You don't want to yeah. be a hammer, hammering and, nails. You know, like I like to talk to people. I like life stories, you know, and it's interesting you brought that up. It's sort of the opposite of much doctoring, which you want to be disconnected from the patients because you have to tell them horrible news. I mean, the only other like real intense conversational doctor specialty would maybe be like an oncologist, I guess, because you have to have really deep, important conversations, like life changing conversations. With I mean, people. it depends. Um, they're. I, th- I think even a family, a family yeah. doctor, you know, yeah. if you've been talking to this guy for 20 years and all of a sudden you think, um, well, now he has lung cancer. Like you, you can have those conversations yeah. and internal medicine. Like one of the things I've been surprised as a first year resident myself is how many of those conversations I had to have, even when I was just on internal medicine wards, I'm the one that's delivering this news. Like, look like your, your prognosis, like not good. It's oh, not they would good. make you do it? No. Uh, sometimes, yeah. So that's the thing about a teaching hospital, especially yeah. a county hospital, yeah. is you're stretched for resources. And Josh, you um, go tell them. I don't want to. That's the thing. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons that, that a lot of people will look at them as good places to train I've, is because you get thrown into the fire. It's not like I'm at this private hospital where the guy's paying a shit ton of money to be there. And they're like, I just want the, the one expert. I want yeah. the chief. That's yeah. it. Like these, you know, for better or worse, these patients don't have you know, that power to demand that. And, you know, it's very humbling as the person who has to go in there and, and try to, you know, have these hard conversations, but it's also, you know, it, it is extremely rewarding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking, uh, speaking, in La- speaking in Los Angeles, it's interesting you mentioned that. I, uh, I was talking with somebody who is also a resident at USC and uh, she was mentioning, I was like, what's the difference between being a resident at USC versus being a resident at a couple of the other big hospitals, namely Cedar sinai and UCLA? And it's interesting because USC and UCLA are sort of rival schools, but the med schools and the university, the teaching hospitals are remarkably different. Extremely different. Extremely different. And uh, and she said that one of the things is that they don't, like, the, the, the quote she said was that uh, they don't even let residents near patients at <laughs> UCLA because they're it's such a high-end hospital. It's a liability piece, but also it's, I mean, taking care of your customers and it's patient care and mm-hmm. it's, 
I mean, it's reputation and resources at its core really is what it is. And so I think that that's an interesting thing that you called out as well. It sort of adds credence to that, that you get sort of more scope and exposure for better or worse at a more resource uh, constrained place like a county hospital. Right. Now, there's a question that's been burning in my mind, which is we just brought up psychiatry in the path. We never asked you to bring up the negative aspects, but those organically happen when you're talking about such a difficult path, right? And yet you seem like a content, affable guy. <laughs> so like, just wait till three more years are done. <laughs> yeah, not, not too jaded yet. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's my, my question is you, you see all these horrible things. You deal with bureaucracy. You deal with a system that doesn't value your health and kind of sees you just as a labor resource. Um, you deal with a system that wants to do everything they can to weed you out because they only want the people that are tough enough to bear it, right? Um, you deal with a system that forces you to take on insurmountable death or de debt rather if something mm -hmm. goes wrong, right? It's just all of these different boxes being checked to kind of make you feel shitty and horrible about life, right? Mm-hmm. And yet the outlook you're presenting is rather optimistic, right? And you wrote in the form something about a perspective change growing up deeply Catholic, right? And then coming to sort of nihilism and then finding a solution to dealing with that nihilism, mm -hmm. right? I mean, are those the strategies and tactics that really allow you to do this? And are there other doctors that don't have those strategies and therefore, you know, they're kind of doomed? Yeah, um... It's a, it's a complex question. It was a lot. With a, with <laughs> that a, was a good question. With, yeah. yeah, it's a very good question with a complex answer yeah, that's yeah. Ob obviously going to be different to, for, to every right, person. About right? you. Yeah. Yeah. But for, for myself, um, so I guess starting with the perspective change. Um, yeah, you're right. So I guess we never did the, the quick uh, bi biographical, but. Yeah, who you are you? Know. Where do you come from? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. You we'll know. weave it in. Yeah. So yeah. here we go Joshua Clifton Eldridge, um, <laughs> the whitest name, but half Filipino. Okay. You know? I was going to say, that's such like a distinguished such name. A are you from the Vermont Eldridges? <laughs> Clifton, wow, yeah. I know, I know. Um, so born in Ohio, um, raised in Kentucky, and moved to Dallas. Uh, mm right before eighth grade. So basically spent high school in Texas. Yeah. So t Kentucky and Texas was primarily where I spent most of my childhood. Um, and then my parents, mom is a first generation immigrant from the Philippines, from Manila, mm -hmm. although she moved over when she was three. So she's super Americanized. Oh, yeah. Like she doesn't speak Tagalog. I sure as hell don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I culturally barely feel Filipino. I live with you my know, roommate, unfortunate. Kyle. I'm culturally Filipino. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so both of them, my, my, and my dad white from both of them actually grew up in Wichita, Kansas of all okay. places, you know? So these are very red, mm -hmm. uh, states and they're also states where, you know, especially compared to California, I think religion plays a, a, a bigger role in, in many, in the, a larger number of people's mm -hmm. lives. Mm -hmm. And so I, my dad Devout Catholic family, devout Catholic, went to Catholic school up until eighth grade. Sunday mass, all yeah. those things. Sunday mass, still get, when I'm back home in Texas, still, still Sunday going. mass, yep. still Sunday yeah. mass. I've heard, I've heard that in the South, let me know if this is something you've experienced, that uh, if you move into, into a new neighborhood or something like that, or you meet your neighbors, that there's two questions you get asked immediately, <laughs> which is which, which football team do you go for and which church do you go to? And that I, that is sort of like a choosing up sides kind of thing where... Oh, he's going to the Baptist church where uh, he's going to be a tier two friend or something like that. <laughs> um, yeah, is there, right. is, are there elements of that? I think there definitely, definitely are. And um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, you would think that if two people are Christians, like you both believed that 
you both believe that um, a guy who was God became a human and then died and then was resurrected. Like if you two can believe that, I think you can get along. You, can, you should get along. <laughs> yeah. But if you're disagreeing on the finer points of what, like, it, you know, the whole conflict, yeah. the, the conflicts between all the different denominations of Christianity, that's a different, that's another conversation that, you know, could last, last forever. Um, but basically that was, that was kind of my background mm-hmm. and my dad, you know, not only a very religious, a wonderful, wonderful person, intelligent person, engineer mm-hmm. background, um, but he also loved to talk about politics too. So I grew up in a very Catholic conservative household. Um, when I was 18, I uh, fully believed that, you know, I fully believed in Catholicism you At know, 18. and all of yeah. the, yeah. So like pretty, like this wasn't <laughs> like, like, I feel like a lot of people it's like, Oh, when I was like 12, I kind of knew yeah. like I was just going to church and going but through I, the motions. I but I get it. It would hmm. have not been beneficial for you to change your mind until you left the house. Not yeah. at all. Yeah. And, and honestly, you that's know, your, that's your environment, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It's your environment. And it's like, you it's not fully that consequential. Yeah. I knew very few people who I would say were outspokenly not religious, you know, especially in Kentucky, almost everyone I knew was Catholic. Mm-hmm. And then when I moved to Texas, almost everyone I knew was religious in some way, you know, mm-hmm. whether that's Christianity, um, you know, Islam, Judaism, all, all these different yeah. things, but everyone had some sort of religious background. And, um, yeah. So 18, I thought Catholicism was real. Catholic guilt was real. Holy shit. I, you know, when I lost my virginity, I, I was going to ask you about your relationship with sex. Then. Horrible. I yeah. felt it. And that what's interesting is that's just that Catholic guilt, that Catholic sense of morality, um, is so deeply ingrained in people oh, that you can mo- be well, it's millennia in the making. too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you can be away from the faith. You can have your heart out of the faith for years and you still feel guilty about certain oh, things. It's like goodness. a very interesting programming. Yeah. Right. Right. And so, you know, I'm raised in that environment mm-hmm. and then I had the great fortune of moving out to California and going to Stanford for undergrad, which I mean, I'm sure you guys have been to the Bay Area. Would I call it a very religious place? <laughs> it's not um, Kentucky. Sure isn't. <laughs> you know, but I mean, outskirts of it, but yeah. So, but I think what was really formative for me was just meeting all of these different people from all of these different backgrounds. And it's like, yo, you mean this person who is like a, you know, you know, very outspoken atheist is also like an extremely good person and like a humanist and has morality and it's possible to have morality, you know, even outside of the confines of, you know, a very structured religion. Oh wait, it seems, you know, and then you start to realize like, you know, it kind of seems like whatever these people believe, it kind of just comes from their family and where they're born. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like very determined just geographically, like as simple as that. And so, I mean, I think, most people go through some, you know, this process, but then you start to question like, well, you know, why exactly am I Catholic? And once you start to realize that maybe there is this geographic, you know, just environmental, environmental, exactly. You know, it's all just kind of chance, you know, if I was, you have to go through this, um, which part did you ever have to have a big perspective shift away from religion? Um, I'm, I'm, I was sort of more in the group where you said you're sort of kind of 12 or something like that. Um, that group. Yeah. 
because I guess both of my parents grew up going to church, but I think I get the sense from them that it was a combination of the religious aspect, but it was also, there was a social component too. Where oh, you, absolutely. You socialize with the people you go to church with. It's almost like a country club of sorts where mm-hmm. it's like people from a similar background in a similar neighborhood with similar worldviews, with similar experiences, hanging out, and it gives a pretense for common hanging out and we're going to have a Super Bowl party with everybody from our church group, Bible study, stuff along those lines, which is valuable in sort of driving mm-hmm. community. Um, but I'd say, yeah, around age 12 or so, I uh, I started going to, uh, I started just getting a little bit more perspective. And especially in Los Angeles, there's not like a, there's not as sort of clear of a foundation of a lot of the interactions you have in a very, in a state or a place, um, happens on the foundation of religion. And so I started to see that. And, uh, and then I guess what came out of that was the ability to look for other paths and Mm -hmm. be more open to considering it because there was so, there was so much diversity around me. I grew up in a neighborhood in, in Silver Lake in Los Angeles, which is very artistic, forward thinking, um, in sort of sort of bucks conventions in a lot of ways. And so that helped me see additionally that I, that it was up to me and I could sort of consider all the options out there. What was it like for you, Pat? I mean, I was secular from the time I had the brain power to conceive of such ideas. Oh, okay. <laughs> like my mom's side, super Irish Catholic. So my older two brothers, like the first one we got to communion, like mainly just to send pictures to my grandma, right? My yeah. parents were never religious. Um, by the time it got to me, it was like, as with so many, like so many parenting strategies, it was just like, why even bother? You know, we cared so much at the first one and it worked out. This one will work out too. You yeah. Know I mean? yeah. Right. Um, I, yeah, I, I feel very much privileged for getting to be the youngest child. I think it's, it allows you a lot of intellectual freedom and it allows you to grow up at a much faster pace because I'm growing up at the same pace as somebody who's five years older than me. Right. Cause yeah. we're all getting, we're all going through the same programs together. Yeah. And also you have less helicoptering from your parents, I imagine. Cause well, they hopefully recognize. That, oh, for sure. Like latchkey fr- lifestyle. We walked to middle school, came home, nobody was home, right? And consider this, Chuck E. Cheese just filed for bankruptcy this week. R.I.P. motherfuckers. <laughs> I remember distinctly the moment me and both my brothers got over Chuck E. Cheese. We looked around, we're like, we're too old for this. I was yeah. five years younger. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So you were so, very different people. I probably could yeah. still enjoy a Chuck E. Cheese even, even today. <laughs> you're, you're not, you're, 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 the Jurassic Park ride. Apparently you're not allowed to get in unless you have a kid mm. with you. That's, it should be that which way. Which makes sense. As it should be. As it should be, From a safety component. But I still remember a girl in my high school having her uh, her 18th birthday party there <laughs> oh wow and they had to combine they didn't have the balloons to get to that number so she had a five balloon and a 12 balloon <laughs> or a six <laughs> balloon and a 12 balloon or something wow. like that that's funny that's um, funny but well, that's yeah shout continue, out to right. yeah, go ahead. Chuck E. Cheese and their animatronic <laughs> band and their yeah, do- sure. dog shit pizza and for a bunch sure. of snot-nosed kids screaming around of which I was one that's how you build a strong asking, immune system. Well, yeah. I mean, they had that campaign where it was like, good grades, you get free tokens. So I definitely took oh, it. Oh, yeah. That's and true. I yeah. still remember, I'm still salty about this, that I had better grades on my report card than my friend, that my dad took both of us there, and we both got the same $5 mm. in fucking tokens, and I had better grades. I worked harder because That's I thought I was going to get school. more tokens. I realized. <laughs> not that I'm not that I'm hung up on this or anything. I'm um, really beginning to understand Hayden. He has these childhood instances that put like continually built this chip on his shoulder that makes him work so hard. It yeah, was arguing with a child about whether the Atlantic or Pacific Ocean is bigger. There we had the, in preschool, <laughs> and then this one in preschool. There, we had these two kiddie pools, and one, and we just got in this big argument over which kiddie pool was the Atlantic Ocean and which kiddie pool was the Pacific Ocean. I can't believe yeah. I'm talking about this on a podcast again. Only the most um, important topics. And we got a big thing and it was, well, my dad said that the, and it became this big fucking like four and five year old pissing contest about whose references were more legitimate and credible. 
And I ultimately wound up being right, but nobody remembers that except mm, yeah. for fucking me. Medicine so, feels like that sometimes. I can, <laughs> that. Thank you for bringing no, that back. No, no. <laughs> um, we'll continue. That. You're at Stanford. Yeah, so, You're yes. wrestling with 18 years of indoctrination. Exactly, um, exactly. Yeah. And then slowly, you know, getting exposed, like, you know, some of my closest friends, some of yeah, the, the dorms and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, you know, you meet this like You're incredibly not eclectic group of people, yeah. you know, that I love that I respect you're still um, friends with Facebook yeah, bodies yeah yeah and it's interesting you brought up you were the youngest yeah I'm the oldest just by yeah. a couple of years um but my younger brother and I we both went through actually somewhat similar transformations but he his occurred at Notre Dame which is the Catholic Mecca yeah, you know in America so yeah. it's, it was kind of you know kind of interesting to see like I'm kind of in like the opposite environment of that um we both kind of went through these similar similar you know, transformations and it's difficult being someone who is so religious at that age. And then, you know, you kind of wake up like for me, it, I, I very much remember, I think I maybe had like six months to a year of like, just, you know, telling my, like convincing myself like, or like trying to convince myself that I still believed in it because that's like the foundation for the entirety of your worldview, you yeah, know, it's a big you, part of your identity up till then. Oh, ex- extremely so. And not just, that but if you can imagine you know like the whole concept of purpose you know I had never thought about that I never had to think about that I was you know there was a God doing God's work cared about me why I don't fault I know there's a lot of anti-religious hate I don't I don't fault people who embrace those ideas I agree because having purpose in this world is it's a good incredible strength an incredible advantage it can be a tool it's a good framework to live your life if you are religious you kind of have this auto purpose. There's a God that cares about you, that planned you out, that knows you and that you are here you, for yeah. a reason and bad shit that happens to you. You know, maybe there's a reason for that. It helps you rationalize it. Mm-hmm. But if you're coming from that perspective and then one day you wake up and you're like, wait, I actually don't believe this. <laughs> you're the entirety of like the rug that, you, you know, the foundation yeah. that your identity is built upon just pulled out from underneath you. And so I'm sitting here at age like 19, 20, you know, feeling like I'm an adult. Obviously, like you look back on it, it's like I was still like, I had very much I like had an idiot. Figured exactly. out at age 20, and yeah. you're in a program where you're having exactly. some of the most like respected intellectuals in the field of neuroscience and things tell <laughs> you that your sense of self is an illusion um, and things like that. You yeah, know, people that are not to burst your, your bubble or anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then you're sitting there and you're trying to say like, well, what is right and wrong? Like, why do I do things? Like, why am I even doing that? Why am I trying? Like yeah. what, like what's, what's the, the whole point, point of everything, yes. you know? Like, and so I had to, I, I had to spend a lot of time thinking about that, you know? And at the time I was so mad. I just, I just remember being so angry at, you know, the circumstances, you know, I, I, have were obviously had spent a lot of time thinking about this, working through this. But for a time, I was mad. You know, being raised in a Catholic household, it's like it's unfair that you know Everybody I should, else some of these things, some yeah. of these things that you know I shouldn't have to question my morality at age twenty. You know, mm-hmm. I shouldn't have to some of these things. Um, but I look back on it and I'm thankful because I did have to spend a lot of time thinking about well, you know, what is my purpose? Mm-hmm. You know, like how am I going to make life not just you know tolerable or livable but like something that like I'm invigorated by that I look forward to you know how how do I move past nihilism yeah it's the we were talking about this on a different episode but um you know Albert Camus the French philosopher 
Mm. I know of him. I I can't say I know, that I could like. I know I know the name. I know. He's so a his seminal one. work educate me. Yeah, he's sort of like the, us, yeah. the father of existentialism, right? Okay. Um, in in his opinion, there's one philosophical question. Everything else is derivative. The one philosophical question is whether or not to commit suicide. Mm. It's to look out into an abyss of meaninglessness and figure out, hey, do I want to just like give up, or do I want to try to make sense of this world? And I'm glad you you chose to try to make sense of the world, but. Uh, it sounds morbid, but it, it it really is true and it's representative of sort of a nihilistic life outlook, which is like... Real quickly, can we define what nihilism means? I, 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 would, I would define it as um, an understanding of inherent meaninglessness. So mm-hmm. nihilism, nothing yeah, matters. negative yeah. nihilism, nothing matters. Nihilism, which, nothing matters like basically. in the way that you grow up and the way that language works in this society would imply some super negative viewpoint. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think that's just how language is and it's sort of like it's a deficiency. Sem- semantic of, piece. Yeah, it's a deficiency of how we use language, right? Yeah. Like. It, it's it only sounds negative because you were told growing up in most cases of right. like this word meaning it was defined to you and, and you were given these things that gave your life meaning and later you find out those things aren't true so you feel like if those aren't true then meaning isn't true and you grew up to kind of treasure this made up concept of God. meaning right okay. it, objectively it's hmm. not negative or positive it's, it's just a, a thing yeah it's a neutral okay. yeah. idea right but it doesn't mean that you can't make a meaningful life it, it gives it just gives you a fresh foundation the ball is in your court so i guess you start yeah, so right. rather than starting from something it gives you an opportunity to go back and start from nothing and build you meaning out, right. build, build yeah. meaning out of nothing yeah. right I, I i agree with what you were saying pat i think like you realize like i don't know it, it's almost liberating it can be yeah. liberating to yeah. realize like you know or what? it can like, be crippling yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> and i think that a lot of people struggle with that you know, I'm not even going to lie like that, that I have it a hundred percent figured out. I think everyone at some points go, you know, goes through this period of like, you know, why am I doing this? You know, if this doesn't really matter. Um, but yeah, I think in general, I fall on the side that it is somewhat liberating to know, like I can pretty much do whatever I want. It's not like there's some sort of like path, some sort of like set of milestones off the path. Yeah. Yeah, Understand that everything is invented and can be disinvented or changed or reinvented or or change how you approach or how you look at it Mm -hmm. and getting to the point in your life where you realize or for myself at least that you know i am much happier if i have a purpose you know Mm -hmm. i and i i can choose that purpose um and that was probably the major turning point for me going from a place of like nihilism well now i just want to you know, I'm in college. Like, What's am I point? just going to drink, party, you know, do that? Slowly that kind of kill stuff. yourself. Yeah. I mean, kind yeah. of, honestly. Yeah. Um, but or rapidly I, kill yourself. We're all slowly yeah. killing ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think for my, and for myself, there was a, an extremely formative book that I, I mean, a lot of people have read this Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Yeah. Have you heard about this? Yeah. I don't know this. All right. So, crazy story. I highly blow, recommend this book. Blow, I think you would actually probably bit, yeah. love this yeah. book. It was written by, I think he was actually a psychiatrist, uh, either psychologist or psychiatrist, um, Jewish, who... I think he was 45 or so when he went into the... Right. Uh, went the into a concentration camp. I can't tell you the specific one, but basically this, it's a memoir of everything he experienced while at this concentration camp. And one of the key things he focused on was what separated the people that survived mm. from the people that did not vaguely familiar, the people yes. that survived from people that didn't. And his own conclusion from that was the people who had a purpose. Yeah. And that could be, I mean, this was it, on radio lab or something. Yeah. <laughs> and that could be as simple as 
my wife is out there somewhere. Yeah. I want to try to find her. Like just having something that keeps you moving forward is what helped them survive through that. Yeah. There was to add on that. There was one sort of famous line of his where he said, uh, the only power that can never be taken away from you. Cause that's he was living in a world where every single one of his freedoms were taken away. Your food's taken away, your resources, your humanity is taken away. Cause these were horrific places. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, the only thing that can never be taken away from a man or a person is their ability to choose their own attitude in any given set of circumstances. God, you guys just segued perfectly into another thing that was mentioned on Josh's Are we going to talk about our sponsors? No. <laughs> Challenger Hair Care. Challenger Hair Care. This episode's brought to you by Challenger. What a, We're not what transitioning to sponsors right now? <laughs> no, there was another thing that really jumped out on your questionnaire, which mm-hmm. was Sapolsky, because you've mentioned choosing, you just mentioned choosing. I love that and I'm all for it, right? But then one of the most informed neuroscientists in the history of the field says that you're all wrong, we're completely full of shit, we have no choice, and life is totally predetermined by environment and biology. Right. We get a segue high five for that one. That <laughs> I think I, I think I would say more accurately. I don't know that he so strongly feels that. I think that he recognizes that there maybe is a counterpoint. To that. Oh but no, we'll he see. uses very strong that. language, uh, okay. and so, he'll argue well, hundred percent. He didn't choose to change his mind on that. No, he can't. He can't choose, he can. and yeah. it's not right. his fault that he feels this way. <laughs> so I, I, I was extremely fortunate to take a class with him in awesome. college, and I, it, it was one of those paradigm shifting classes that kind of then permeated the just completely changed the way that I looked at people, social interaction and myself. It was yeah. one of those things. The, the class called human behavioral biology. Like, thank you for bringing and, up one part where college really helps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we bash right. college a lot. So this is good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, you know, and I, I was just lucky enough to be, you know, exposed to this person who's kind of like a Jane Goodall figure. He, uh, you know, every so often, I think maybe like every other year, he would go spend a summer living with the chimpanzees in Africa. And he's the baboons. You know, yeah, yeah. And he just gained wow. so much wisdom, um, while, you know, learning about their social structures and basically comes to this conclusion, you know, it, you, you know, that we are animals, you know, we're life, you know, yes. we, we can, we fall into these categorizations of life and, you know, we're animals, we're mammals, but like, I feel like a lot of the time we don't really we see ourselves as different, you know, there is something different, uh, yeah. you know, Christianity, especially like yeah. you are the stewards of the world, you know, you, it, it, you are on a, on a plane above. And I think Sapolsky, it, it, it's really more of a, we are humans. Like, look, we're, ex- you could see examples of like these interesting patterns of behavior we have all across the animal kingdom. And yeah, like I said, it was paradigm shifting for me to just even start viewing people like that. Yeah, there's one weird kind of nuanced thought that comes to mind, which is a lot of the reason people see themselves as a human so different is because of all the technology that exists around you. But you don't realize that you really had no hand in creating this. I've long held a belief that like 25 people understand how yeah. most of the world works <laughs> and everyone else is just kind of coasting. Like, I know how to touch this thing. Yeah. I don't know why. When I touch it, it does certain things. Yeah. I don't know when I touch this keyboard, certain things happen. I couldn't tell you why. I could spend my whole life trying to figure it out right but because i can do this i feel like i'm not a fucking caveman i gotta fucking look at this laptop i'm recording this thing. I mean, yeah look at us like, Yo, yeah. i clicked the circle with the red the circle inside of it so we're recording right like um but you know if you put me back in caveman times i'd be the most useless caveman around right so yeah and i mean we're all still like why are we what are the like the basic forces that are causing us to do things like you know hunger 
sex. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we were talking about that as well. You Shelter, know, safety, Maslow's hierarchy, like, like very basic, yeah. like survival instincts that yeah. just we've, you know, kind of developed these more complex, you know, frameworks system, around. Framework. Yeah. Exactly. You exactly. can demonstrate a lack of free will very easily with hunger and sex because you have cravings. You do something, the craving is gone. Your behavior is entirely changed. Um, one way to really tell if you like someone, if, if you're really sexually attracted to them and then you orgasm and then you still want to be around them, that means you really <laughs> like that person, right? Oh, yeah. Um, Interesting. That's a great, you know, litmus test, uh, yeah. I would say. But, um, yeah, I, I, I don't agree with him entirely. I, mm. I do think humans are special in some regard. And I think that whatever the biology is that links to consciousness and an and idea to conceive a self, I, I think that gives us some element to free will. Like right. some bit of agency. No, we don't have complete agency. Yes, there's uh, an entirely large percentage of your life that's determined by randomness. But is that really helpful for me? Like, yeah. So Paul, well, you you're not you helping my life it, you at can't all. Change it, yeah. But there are parts. Yeah. Robert but, Robert Green said that 96 percent of our life is decided for us because it's where you're born, when you're born, who your yeah. parents are. If you were if you were born in sub-Saharan Africa, you wouldn't be on this podcast with us, right? No. Now. Yeah. You know what? And that's like a lot of drive I feel to do stuff, right? Yeah. I have such like man, I was born in. This I was place. born in I the United States of yeah. America. Yeah. In the yeah. late not in the late. I'm doing a disservice yeah. to all the people right. that don't have that opportunity. Yeah. Right? If I don't so, just do as much as possible. And it's interesting because what you're bringing up is you know the sense of gratitude. Yeah. Kind of an appreciation for your circumstances. And I think, you know, you mentioned like, how do I stay positive, you know, in yeah. kind of this, you know, environment that can be so toxic, so negative um, Could or just be in a, a world, in a nihilistic world, you know. Yeah. But I think, you know, that recognition that we are so extremely lucky, even yeah. just to be existing i don't know like one like i say one, hot water like We're such like a miracle when yeah. when i i get down it like one of the things that i can you know i feel like i can just really just think about first off the universe existing like mm-hmm. makes no sense yeah you know like that there was some singularity and then like this like ridiculous inflation happened and that somehow all of that happened in a way that allowed these atoms, like who knows where those came from, to somehow arrange in an organized way that caused, you know, a cell with DNA that for some reason wants to replicate with and mm-hmm. in order to replicate DNA, it's this whole process with so many different possibilities for errors. And somehow yeah. it works and not only works, but has worked for billions of years in such a way that it created brains that could then look at it and figure it out. And we have one of those brains and yeah. it's, we're extremely lucky to be in that circumstance. Um, but you have to reconcile that with sort of an infinite timeline and an infinite yeah. scale. And, and I think you could just ignore it. Like I, I feel like my life is special. I feel like I'm in an adventure movie and when I'm walking down a hallway or something, I feel like well, everybody's the hero. Yeah. Everybody's yeah. The, hero. the protagonist. They're, they're the they're protagonist yeah. in their yeah. own life. Yeah. But yeah. I am like, you're like, really you're, good. You're the center of your own universe. <laughs> he's the protagonist plus. I think is what he's going for. <laughs> you wrote heliocentrism. I think everything I revolves around me. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that Patrick, Patrick centrism, Wardell, Wardell. And I fully embrace that idea. Like a big perspective shift for me was sort of saying fuck it and just like I'm not gonna feel guilty about being selfish or anything like this like uh, do you man yeah really yeah really. well I, I I do think that a recognition that you know life itself is selfish to an extent yeah. and you shouldn't feel guilty about that just you don't being have to conscious makes you, you don't have to virtue yeah. signal and you yeah. know try to convince other and people that you don't it, care about because you 
do care about yourself more than other people, and but it's, and you it's can not still, self, it's not selfish. Yeah. It's prioritization. And the word selfish means mm-hmm. it has a connotation where it's like, you're choosing yourself over something else. Yeah. It, 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 yeah. That's a false corollary because I'm just prioritizing anything over everything. Have you ever heard of effective altruism? Ooh, there's another define there's another it. Code effective word. altruism code word, yeah. is, is basically this, this theory. I think it's like Peter Singer and Derek Parfit, who I mentioned in the other episode yep. are like pioneers of that field Uh, and it's basically like you should live your life in a way that most efficiently helps others so you can make arguments that i should go work on wall street but live like a very meager life because by selfishly doing horrible things like to the economy to generate mass wealth i can then donate that money and account for those in a bigger way right interesting Mm -hmm. and it kind of points out something to me that philanthropy is not about helping others entirely like it's also about what you get out of it yeah there's a site that's really core to effective altruism called give well and it lists the most efficient ways you can give money and of course the top three are malaria nets right but do I really feel, and I'll give to the malaria nets because you literally save like thousands of lives with a hundred dollars. <laughs> it's amazing what you can do. Um, but do you feel as good than when you give to like, you know, if I have an autistic brother and I give to an autism charity or something, I feel so much better about that. Right. Cause it connects to me. Right. Which implies to me that philanthropy is not just about helping others. It's, it's well, about doing something positive yeah, for your it's, own it's self realization yeah. and, you know, proving to yourself like these things that you believe that you want to believe that you believe, you know, are real in some way. I think mm-hmm. I, I listened to this, uh, 90 year old entrepreneur talk and somebody said, what do you like? How do you approach philanthropy now that you're later in life? And, uh, his answer was that he doesn't really believe in philanthropy, but he believes in enlightened self-interest mm-hmm. and that there are outlets that have that go on a philanthropic sort of they stay in a philanthropic lane. Yeah. But the majority of what people do, it's in a it's in the interest of sort of a- accentuating uh, who they are and their vision of themselves. So if yeah. they consider themselves, yeah. I'm going to be the person that eradicates polio. That's the thing that they're going to work on. It's a, it's a self-interest. Yeah, it's, it's I want to eradicate mm-hmm. polio mostly because I want to feel I want, so I good from be eradicating the, I polio. I want to be that guy. Yeah. Or yeah. I want to be the There's guy who with funded, yeah, funded the foster care program for 50 years or started the endowment or the scholarship at a school. There's yeah. Stuff. But it's a, it's a lot of it is this, it's enlightened self-interest. And a lot yeah. of that field is about how can we be the most effective altruist? Well, it's about being honest mm-hmm. about what giving is, yeah. right? And not just giving face value to, you're helping the kids, mm-hmm. right? If that were the case, people would only give to the malaria nets right. because right. it's really the most effective thing right. you can do. I mean, even just connecting that idea to, you know, questions you asked earlier, like why medicine? Like very, it is very much, that very much aligns with like one you of the re- main good. reasons yeah. why medicine is like, what are the what are the things that I can like get kind of this immediate gratification of feeling like I'm a decent person mm-hmm. while also making what I consider to be comfortable money? You know, yeah. unfortunately, yeah. we do live in a world where the money matters, especially yeah. if you're going to be Re- in res- California. Resources Holy matter, crap. yeah. Like, yeah, and and it's comforting to know what you need to do to make money. Like, I think we've mentioned that before. It's one of the hardest things about the business world is like figuring out what the fuck to do because like what is going to work changes yeah. constantly. It's so nebulous. You have to be ready yeah. to pivot. And change is the only constant. Yeah, you know, yeah. six years ago it was Facebook ads. Now they're pretty much useless, right? And it's like, okay, what are these strategies? What are the new right. things? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. blimps. Um, Whereas at least so, in the doctoring world, you know, I got to do four years here. I oh, it's do here. great for these someone. Are the numbers who, I need to get. Yeah, it's great for someone who trends towards being risk averse. You know. No, it, there's, there's stability. It's, it's very much. Yeah, it's, it's so like, funny because I'm risk averse, and it was the debt. Like <laughs> to yeah. me, that's the biggest risk because I know I'm going to change my mind halfway through. Yeah. <laughs> on one hand, you just kind of get yourself to stop thinking about it. On the other yeah. hand, but then on the other, it's like you know, I'm, I have a lot of debt. 
I have, yeah. I have six. But figures. you have a way out. Yeah. Six yeah. figures worth of debt. Yeah, I mean, but you have a path for over seven years to get rid of the six figures. Yeah, of debt exactly, and and there's precedent for it, it going away, right? You've right, seen, yeah. right, right. And I, I just lucked into finding you know kind of this specialty that just is gonna work for it. It works for me. So what are know? some things going back to psychiatry? What are some things yeah. that most people misunderstand about psychiatry? What are some things that people misunderstand about the brain and its mm-hmm. impact on our body? And I, so the, the, hmm. fr- the frame through which I want to frame, I want to, the frame through which I want to pose this question is people don't understand this. They should think about that as far as like, hmm. we're given, we're given our listeners like a software download basically for a new way to look at things or if there's new research that's coming out or new practices or any sort of actionable takeaways where somebody can go, Oh, I was listening to the podcast and this homeboy came on and he said this one thing partway through based on this new research and it really helped. And I don't want to put a bunch of pressure on you because it's sort of a fluid conversation, but what are some of the things that you're finding and what do a lot of people misunderstand about psychiatry? Right. Um, I think you guys actually, uh, touched on this with, uh, Brad, I think, Mm -hmm. um, a couple of weeks ago and Patrick was mentioning this, um, you know, is mental illness a socially constructed thing? Like is mental illness real? And, kind of stemming from that, like what is the point of psychiatry? You know, if the answer to that question is, you know, it's all socially constructed. Uh, Yeah. I proposed a paradigm just, just to kind of go back to what, what the question was. I proposed a paradigm where the only reason mental illness exists is because there's a way you have to behave and think in the society to fit in and not stand out and not disrupt the status quo. Right. Um, if your biology is messed up to the point where you're hyper-sexualized or hyper-aggressive and you're going to pose a danger or a threat to others, we have to do something to fix that because it does not fit with the way that we see society and the way our rules and, and regulations are set up, right? So we define it as mentally ill, right? But if most people just happen to have that schizophrenic trait and the mm-hmm. rest of us didn't, we would be the mentally ill people, right? right? In a different society. In, I, right. I guess. in the insane world, the sane man is yes. considered insane. Right, right. And I think, you know, like most things in the world, you know, it can seem like, is it is, is this a black or white situation? The answer is somewhere in the middle. It's kind of gray, yeah. you know? And Much like the brain. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yep. Thank you. And so where I would fall along that question is... um there are very clear examples where it's mental illness For is sure. not just a social construction. It's and I, physical I, I, stuff I can go, the I brain. can go more into that, yeah. but like, the, like it, very much so like the, these patients, <laughs> they hate it. They want it to stop. It's yeah. not just people telling them that they're messed up. It's, it's something dendrites it's and axons getting messed yeah, up in the brain. And that's a up. distinction that I think is really hard in the world right now, yeah. because there's another thing which I find is like, because mental illness is so intertwined with negative emotion, it can be really hard. I think in your world, it's much easier to tell where the distinction of like serious mental illness and somebody who's sad begins. Right. Mm-hmm. But out in the real world where we don't have any training, like right. we can't really tell, like my idea of depression is something that looks and sounds like something I see people act like all the time. Yeah. Right? And, and it's tough to tell who's leaning into an identity and maybe using it as an excuse and somebody who is, legitimately has a serious chemical problem that needs to be solved. Right. And so, you know, kind of to tie in some Sapolsky here is one of the things I loved about him is like, you kind of think about what is the biological reason that we might have developed something like depression, Mm -hmm. you know, and you know, it kind of seems like it is 
this thing that developed to tell you something is wrong with your life to motivate you to change something about it. I think that's what you could maybe it's one way that you could argue why sadness exists. For I example. like that a lot. An evolutionary basis, for example, sickle cell anemia for malaria or diabetes. A lot of people think now that it was a response to cold climates. There's examples wait, of it. Wait a minute. In, in, you can't everywhere. just say those things without explaining them. <laughs> well, I, we got to so. move past because I, I I'm not well versed on that. Okay. That's all I know. We'll, we'll circle. We'll, we'll circle. I mean, sickle right. cell anemia is easy. Yeah, yeah. What? Right. That's no. Explain that. <laughs> your red blood cells are right. misshapen. You're less likely to contract and die from malaria. Exactly. But exactly. you also can't transport oxygen as efficiently. So in a wait, normal so, world wait, where so you don't have malaria, sickle cell anemia. I've, if I have sickle cell anemia, I'm less likely to get malaria. Yeah, yes. contract so, or die. So yeah. it's adaptive for a specific set of people under a specific set of circumstances. So that's why that mutation can exist persist. and persist yeah. in in society. Because, uh, you know, when I see a sickle cell patient here in America where there is no threat of malaria, they come in and they get what, what are called these sickle cell crises. Yeah. And that's, you know, so your your cells are usually this nice little like donut disc shape yeah. and they compress really well to go through your blood vessels. And this sickle um, shape can kind of cause these like little mini clogs. Basically, you're not getting enough blood to certain areas, especially like it can happen in your bones, your fingertips, and they get it's extreme pain. Like Ugh. these are one Ugh. of the few people that will come into the hospital and are like, I need Dilaudid, which like is like the most, pain. which is the strongest, you know, Oof. it's one of the strongest opiates that we have. And you're like, you have sickle cell, we're Loaded giving up. it to you right now. <laughs> yeah. Because like, usually, usually it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, you're just trying to get everybody to yeah. But yeah, no. But, and, so, and have they done fMRI scans on people having those episodes to see that their their brain is lighting up like a Christmas tree because of the pain signaling or? I don't know if they've actually done the fMRI to see if the pain is there but i think it's just you can see these infarcts happening uh, infarct is infarct a, meaning uh you're in, not getting blood to the area infarction. yeah, yeah. so like myocardial like a myocardial infarction, infarction. It's it's a word, isn't it? you're getting yeah. a clot in, in your a, myocardial in blood vessel. infarcted yeah <laughs> yeah not getting blood there yeah. not getting oxygen causing the area to die causing pain Got and so it. you can get that with sickle cell and so that's that's an example of how like something that is maladaptive in a lot yeah. of circumstances can persist through society. And oh. you know, quick tangent from what we were talking about earlier, but yeah. another Sapolsky tie-in. Ooh, yeah. one of he's the a things fascinating I, guy. This is great. One of the one of you're his mentee. Uh, I didn't know about this guy until today. This yeah. is fantastic. No, he he gave an entire lecture on you know schizophrenia yes. and why schizophrenia exists. Because mm-hmm. you know, if we're gonna believe that life as we know it is here, you know, as the result of evolution, you know, we're going to select for the beneficial traits and we're going to select out all the, I, all the, I say you dissident. select the least bad traits. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean that, that's yeah. true. Like, like you don't, it's not that you're getting the best, you're getting whatever works the still minimum works. amount. Yeah, it, it needs still to works. Yeah. It still works. Yeah. And so, uh, um, one question is why, why the hell do we have schizophrenia here? Okay. Like, cause if, if you have true, debilitating schizophrenia it's not really compatible with like being able to survive like even even you know take yourself out of the confines of you know our current social structure where it's very complex world where you have to be able to you know budget and you know invest and plan into the future with interest right like like there's all these complex planning yeah but even even you pull them out of that situation and schizophrenia you you just 
get this, you know, you have no volition to do anything. You, you don't want to leave your apartment. You don't want to socialize, you know, you put that person back 200,000 years ago and it's like tribal, you know, humanity, that person's going to die too. You know, Mm -hmm. that person's going to die back then too. It's not just society today and that environment. And that's one of the, that would be one of my arguments is that true debilitating schizophrenia, mental illness, not a social construct. But the int- so one of the interesting arguments for the persistence I was of make schizophrenia, one. You go first. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so is that it's similar somewhat to this whole sickle cell um, for malaria that you know if you don't have the most severe form of That's sickle cell, say. it helps yeah. you survive. It it can actually be protective if you don't. And so one of the arguments is think about you know the role that religious leaders that you know like like shamans for example mm-hmm. in in um, a tribal society they're kind of placed on this pedestal like if you're if you're the shaman if you're a guy who is sitting there and not only can make other people believe that you're having these visions having these like religious experiences seeing things that other people don't see not only making them believe it but you also believe it but you can still you know you still have charisma, you know, you're not, you're not scaring it's people off. You're inspiring yeah. people yeah. that having kind of that partial expression of, of like a sort of schizophrenia t- trait can be protective and maybe is the reason that it yeah. persists today. That's one argument. You know, I don't mm-hmm. think that tells the full story, but I think it is it's pretty compelling. That's the most compelling yeah. argument to me. It would be like, yeah. there's people that can't feel pain, right? Mm-hmm. That's not helpful. Really not helpful here for your life. But having like a dull pain tolerance could be really yeah. helpful. Yeah, right? like exactly. red, redheads. Apparently gingers have Oh, a, you're right. There yeah. is a thing like that. There's, yeah. it's, like diag- it's like, I guess there's observational studies that have shown that people who have redhead, basically gingers, have higher pain tolerances to the mm-hmm. point where they have to I think they have to sedate them with heavier drugs and anesthesia if you go in for surgery and that there's special protocols for uh, pain management. Wow, that's funny. I didn't know that. We love correlational studies because it allows us to really do anything we want. (laughs) One thing that is interesting is... Find me the the outcome that you want and I'll build some some numbers that work for it. God, I love science. (laughs) Um, One thing that I I don't think a lot of people know necessarily about schizophrenia is that they they can actually present with extremely high pain tolerance as well. Really? You know, I think one of the ways that I rationalize that is, you know, schizophrenia, one, one, one thing that kind of happens is it kind of changes your brain's ability to, um, you know, to really accurately comprehend the signals that the rest of your body is telling you. Yeah, you know? I've heard this from, uh, I have a friend that works at the sheriff's department and sometimes if they're trying to get really mentally ill people out, if they're like putting gas, they're gassing them, they're, they don't care. No, They had no. this lady that was under a house with a gun and they were gassing her, didn't bother her at all. Right. Totally fine. Like, right. Whereas a normal person would have given up 10 seconds in, she is exactly. completely unbothered by yeah. it. Yeah, and so like, you know, I, I'll, I spend time in an inpatient psych, psychiatric hospital where we'll have you know, patients who will be there for months. So we have to do their primary care. So, you know, you have to really be careful with some of these patients because it's like, oh, they might have just a toothache, but what they're not telling you is that it's actually a massive abscess that can like grow like through their bones and into their brain because they're just not reporting it because either they're not really feeling it or not sensing that they're feeling it or just not able to communicate that. Interesting. So it's kind of this interesting. So what's the makeup of your patient base now? These days, um, so 
like I said, I, I work in a county hospital environment mm-hmm. and so social safety net hospital. And so generally lower SES, lower mm-hmm. socioeconomic status. Um, and I would say our average patient, you know, if you're ending up, if, if you're to the point, like I think you can only be admitted to our hospital. Like if you don't have insurance, like you have to like be on Medicaid or nothing. You, if you have mm-hmm. any other insurance, like you can't come to our hospital. Really? Like yeah. they'll, like if you, they'll transfer you somewhere else. Wow. Yeah. Is that, is, but that's of course after you get stabilized, if it's an emergency. Yeah, situation. of course. If of course. A, if, you exactly. a, if you have a knife in your head, you're going to stabilize them and then sign them to a different exactly, hospital. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I would say my average patient, a lot of schizophrenia and psychotic disorders a shit ton of meth. I had no idea that, you know, Breaking really? Bad must be Capital real. Capital the world, Breaking, baby. <laughs> Breaking Bad must be real. Like there must be, like there must be like these like Mexican super labs that are just flooding yeah. America. I mean, with I, get, meth. I get meth. So like, right. one amazing drug. <laughs> this is, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. I have so many questions and I want yeah. to then, all right, so I want to, I want to dovetail this. How do you, what are the indications that somebody's on meth? Mm. Well, I mean, the only way to truly confirm it is, and is, is through these urine drug screens, yeah. which we do on everyone that comes in. But what's confusing about it is, so generally meth, you know, it's an upper, it, they're going to seem like very activated. Um, if, if like, a, no, so that's the thing though. It, if you're like, if I was to go and take meth right now, someone who doesn't have any underlying psychiatric disorder, any that, psychotic that disorder, that we know of, <laughs> yeah. that we know of. And Asterisk. if you have one underneath yeah. the surface, meth is, is going to help you find That's out if true. it's there or well, not. Does it actually get to that later? Really? That people have activated mental illnesses through drug yeah, use, like yeah. LSD that can happen with younger people. Yes. Yeah. Weed, especially, which is one of the interesting, interesting. things. Um, we'll come back on that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now we're scared. What? Yeah. So, so I think for your, for your someone, so like someone like me, I would be very energized. I'd be speaking fast. I would. It's euphoric. You know, it gives me a lot. You know, I, I I would be able to go a day without sleep. Yeah. You know, and I might even have a lot of like goal directed activity at first. Like I might spend like an entire day cleaning my house. It sounds like Adderall. Or, I it remember is, I took I mean, a 30 it is uh, very cuz Adderall is amphetamine salts. Yeah. They're very very chemically similar. Very one, one day I'm very responsible with molecules and stuff, but one day I took a 30 milligram IR Adderall, which people take that daily. daily. Like, like two of people them will take day. two of them. Yeah. I, I took one and I literally felt, I'm not going to lie, I felt like I could punch through a horse. Yeah. Like my fist would go well, through that's a different one thing side of the pun- horse. Different thing to say you could punch through. Usually yeah, it's right. a wall. Like think about how thick a horse's wow. abdomen is. Mm-hmm. I felt like... The I, abdomon or like the, the girthy, no, like no, the shoulder? Like the stomach. The, the stu- stu- I could punch stomach, through the horse. Why the stomach, not the legs? The hindquarters? It just really stuck out to me. Like not a brick wall, but a horse. A horse. Okay, so punching through horses. And so imagine if you have a psychotic disorder that makes you prone to having grandiose delusions. And then (laughs) you take and then you take that medication (laughs) and all of a sudden you exactly you think you might be the president (laughs) actually. Or I get that you think you might be a superhero or you think you might own all these houses or, you know, apparently that, yeah, apparently yeah. that's what the German army ran on yeah. at the beginning of world war two. JFK yeah. had Addison's disease. Yeah. Right. He, he was so, he did, so energetic. Cause he, he had this shot that he took every morning. That he was, was meth also and B vitamins insanely and, yeah. sick too. He right. got yeah. read his, he got read his last rites twice as a child because he had wow. scarlet fever and then he had Addison's disease. He had crippling back issues. Wow. You know what? Uh, Donald Trump has actually a little bit changed my perspective on amphetamines because it's it's been totally clearing out that he takes amphetamines every day. He's been doing it for years, different diet pills, things like that. And he's like, 
I mean, he's close to 80 now. He has a lot of energy. Oh, he's so Say energetic. Say what you want about him. It's, oh, my God. It's just impressive for someone that old to have the energy and to, to love to care campaign? about. He, like, oh cares about things. You know, yeah. like, it, it, it is To stand impressive. up and riff for hours on end and right. stuff like that. Like, that takes so much energy. Right. And to me, when I see, and we'll, we'll have, this is a good transition because I want to talk about how many of our generation is taking amphetamines daily or, mm-hmm. you know, derivations of them. Right. Uh, and what the consequences of that are going to be. Well, like, I used to think like this is not worth it. You cannot do it without developing intolerance. There's going to be adverse physiological effects, whether it's hypertension, like kind of low grade hypertension that leads to a heart attack at 45 or something. But then I look at someone like Donald Trump and I'm like, this guy's been taking amphetamines for 40 years and he's still upright and, and like, uh, yeah, but he has the ultimate mm-hmm. unlock wealth. <laughs> yeah. It's the I ultimate guess. superpower. I mean, yeah. <laughs> There's a reason Batman's Batman, right? Yeah. It's because he's insanely wealthy. If you were Superman, you'd be a fucking I guess, alien. But you can only buy health to some extent. For sure. Like, um, what's your take on, on, do you, do you feel like scared for this whole generation that is going hard in the paint? Like I know people that take 90 milligrams of Adderall a day. And to me, that's as that's insane terrifying. as a drinking 18 beers in a day. Yeah. Right. It's as insane to me. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I have mixed feelings about it and my overall viewpoint is in moderation in the right setting. I actually think that they can be appropriate. And so mm-hmm. for example, so psychiatry, right? We are one of the key special uh, specialty or we are us and family practice are the ones that treat ADHD. Yeah. You know, which who knows what that, that like, that's one of those socially constructed kids kids being a kid or that's a really tough diagnosis where if you wanted to argue for the social construction of mental illness, there's a very good argument for that one. Um, that being said, you know, we do live in a society where you have to be able to sit down and concentrate and the difference between, being a kid who is nine years old, who is able to sit in class and focus and learn how to read and then thus get A's and thus build self-confidence and not think that you're out of place in the world. And, you know, being able to do that versus being that same nine-year-old who can't at all, who is in trouble all the time because they're yelling in class, not able to learn. They might be put in special ed classes. You grow up thinking that you're a failure and... This the two extremely different trajectories you can go on. That's one with amphetamines, it completely changed my eye because I thought yeah. how you thought, Pat. Well, when, we learned that from the Stacy episode that the earlier you intervene, like it can completely the change the life. Like oh, if yeah. you fall behind in first grade, you're fucked. Right? Yeah. I didn't really think about that before, yeah. but and and I'm with you on. There's people like me who are young and naive and wanted to take advantage of go pills, basically, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's people that you see that are like, wow, no, this, this is a different thing. Like, maybe yeah. this person needs this stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. like, I, we've all met those people. Yeah, yeah. no, like, I, I definitely knew someone in med school who very much had ADHD, and they would not have been there if it hadn't have been for good ADHD treatment. But because that stuff exists, you know, we have another going to be a great physician in yeah. our country. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I think one of the reasons they still persist so much is I don't think we have like data that shows that they're necessarily that harmful in the long You're run, right. which is surprising, honestly, yeah. which is surprising. Yeah. Um, because you know, if you, so we at, should go if, back you to if you look at someone <laughs> yeah. who's been doing meth for five to 10 years, mm-hmm. you know, have you seen some bad meth mouth? 
the worst. What's oh, the equivalent the dosage? Like, like where am I? Yeah, so that's a is tough... 100 milligrams of Adderall equivalent to that's smoking tough... meth? Like... That's a tough question. Depends yeah. on the actually, meth. If you got the blue, so... if you got the Heisenberg blue. So... Having upped an Adderall dose a few times, like the horse right. punching episode, I can see why people get addicted so to meth. Yeah. Imagine, I don't know, the amount of Adderall that you would have to take to Punch be a horse. energized. <laughs> so, oh, I think you can. So one of my, what my patient told me is I was like, so why do you do meth? Like, why aren't you doing, why aren't you out there doing crack? And she was like, well, it's as simple as this, you know, for $5, yeah. I can either be high for 30 minutes or I can be high for an entire day. Yeah. Two days. The even. economics of it. The meth lasts for so long. Yeah. It's so cheap, you know, um, what do they do? Do they any, any? Do they do productive things with it, or do they just run around um, like animals? I, like in all, Wolf of Wall Street, we're all animals. <laughs> all I right. think in general it's hard. Like think about how hard it is to continue doing. I mean, some people can be really productive on Adderall, but I think mm-hmm. a lot, it's really easy to just get like sidetracked and like spend with extreme focus. Like I don't know something spending trivial. all your time on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think meth is very much the same way. Yeah. And but then what ends up happening is. You're doing meth, you can't focus at work, you lose your job, you realize like maybe meth is the problem, but it's also like the only it's source also the solution of happiness. It's all, exactly. It's the only thing, thing that feels yeah. good yeah, in your life. Fucked. And yeah. it, now you're fucked. And that's what happened. And a lot of our that's patients that we see exactly that's, so maybe it's not, that's what happens to a lot of our patients. Maybe it's not hypertension that I think is the long term issue with stimulants. It's it's that aspect. Because for me, as soon as I stopped using stimulants, I went hyper in the other direction. It right. was basically, I don't want to need anything anytime. I want to be on 100% every moment of my life. I don't want to be like, oh, I forgot the pills, so mm-hmm. I'm not going to perform yeah. adequately, right? Even I'm drinking a Coke Zero, I know exactly that there's 41 milligrams of caffeine mm-hmm. in this can. I'm, yeah. I'm regulating my intake. I know everything. Um I think that is a much better yeah. way to ultimately be. I, I agree. Guess. It's so easy for humans to fall into dependence. Even yeah. Like, you yeah. know, it's a vulnerability. Oh, I need yeah. alcohol to socialize or, Oh, I that's need, another one. I, need I, can't, caffeine. Sleep. I can't sleep I without can't, weed. Exactly. I can't, how do you, you know, feel about that? I'm starting to feel like alcohol is a great disservice, um, in this culture. And it really gives people an easy way to cover up certain weaknesses or deficiencies. Um, and then there's the other side of it where it also creates sort of these amazing bonding experiences. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But there's a lot of people that it's like, I'm going on a date. I need to drink. It's like, really? That should make you stop and pause. Cause that yeah. implies that you're not comfortable. Like you're, you're covering for something. Right. Right. Um, what's your take on that? I mean, I'm, Similar to you, you know, I think it's like pretty, like, it's unfortunate to feel like you have to have this, a crutch, you know, I think like yeah. that, like the, if you're thinking about how you should be optimizing yourself, you should probably want to be a person that doesn't need anything to socialize with other people. Probably. You should it, probably want that. Now is the time I can mention Nicole is sitting, <laughs> sitting in this room. <laughs> Josh, I met Josh cause he's dating one of my favorite people in the world, Nicole Tian, who's sitting silently like an angel. <laughs> Such a great <laughs> job. Hasn't made a peep, slowly yeah. grabbed for that water as to not disrupt and she's anything. She's done a great job of laughing and being yeah, participating yeah, with, yeah. but it's all silent laughing. So yeah. shout out to yeah. you. We all pointed to her when we mentioned physician's assistant. Yeah. Um, I didn't know she was a physician's assistant but i still pointed mm-hmm. i was like yeah but going nicole along. was one of the first people i met that i kn- i saw that ability in yeah which was to go out and have fun in like a total with party zero, atmosphere with yeah, no intake alcohol. of these things and yeah I, was like, God, I want that skill yeah it's a superpower you sleep better like you live twice as much life if you're not hungover right yeah and it so, was yeah. like 
Yeah, I, I, I'm just getting that message out into the okay. world. Yeah, no, I agree. I <laughs> support that message. Yeah, I support that message. <laughs> question, question for you on uh, so to those for those people listening that don't know much of they don't have training in psychology, psychiatry, psychotherapy, any of these things. Um, what do I do if I'm a listener and I'm worried about one of my friends? Mm-hmm. because they're either they're not as responsive as they used to be or there's whatever something about that situation doesn't sit well with me to the point where I'm going, hey, I'm worried about your mental health. I want to make sure everything's okay. What's the mechanism and how do you go about checking in with them in a way that's caring, it's non-judgmental, it makes it a safe place for them to open up? Is that even something that I should be doing? How would you approach that as somebody who had no training, didn't know what to do, and all they knew was that they were worried about somebody? Right. You know, I mean, it's tough, you know, in this world, I think a lot of times there is kind of the stay in your own lane sort of philosophy that gets, you know, permeated Mm -hmm. through society, um, which is tough for this example, especially like, so let's say we're talking about a close friend or, you know, like, like a brother. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can, I can tell you, I, one of the, I probably, one of the things that predisposed me to going into psychiatry is I actually did have, I went through this exact same situation with everybody has a personal story and I went through this exact same, uh, situation with, you know, a member of my family who was depressed and, you know, I could tell every time I spoke to them, you know, it was so pessimistic. There was so much pessimism, so much negativity, so much like irritability, like yeah. you can just tell something is off. And so I think if we're talking about someone with whom you have a, a relationship like that, I think the first thing is ask, talk to them. And you don't what, even have what, to do what, it from what, a threat. And what's the ask? What's the question you say? So like, what are the words you say? I think that if I were to be doing that, even today as someone who, you know, I have mental health training now, I would just, Hey, like what's, what's going on? Like, I'm how worried, are you? I'm, I'm like, like really like, yeah. how are you? Like what? Like, don't just say, okay, like what's, what's going on? If they say I'm fine, how do you push back on that? I think that you say, look, like. Do you start rolling out the evidence and you say, hey, I noticed this, I noticed this. When I used to talk about this, you'd get excited and now you get a little bit down. Are you okay? I think you read the person, you know, everyone kind of has different, you know, thresholds for being able to be talked to like that. But I think in general, yes, you do that. And I think that can be very powerful just for someone because I think some people, especially depressed people, you know, when you're in these like negative thought loops that you can't break yourself out of, you don't think anyone cares about you. You don't think Mm -hmm. anyone's watching or listening. And just the very fact that you are open and receptive and there for them, that right there can be extremely, extremely helpful. Yeah. I go back and forth on, I mean, I think your advice is ultimately the best advice. Now in my mind, I go back and forth on whether talking about things like this like if it's a real clinically uh, significant disease of course you need to go that route I kind of wonder sometimes like if I talk about the thing with someone am I perpetuating that identity in them am I allowing them to sink deeper into that kind of like label but there's, al- but there's also empathy uh, inside um, of that conversation yeah. where you're it's going a, hey I understand you're not balance. in this by yourself right. I'll step into the hole with you so that mm-hmm. you understand so that you know that you're not yeah. there by yourself and it's an interesting question because the the problem is something like depression and I think one of the ways that you could draw the line between clinically what we are going to medically we call a medical issue. Like that is depression, big D capital D depression versus, you know, Oh, I feel like depressed. I'm I've been more sad than usual is 
that I think in someone who is clinically depressed, they are stuck in pretty much this like downward spiral negative thought loops that they can't, that like that is self perpetuating. And the longer you let that fire burn, the more, the larger it grows, you know? And if you don't cut it off early, like it's very hard to just pull yourself out of that situation. And, and, and one of the misconceptions I find, like when I first used to think about depression or even approach it as a subject, it was sort of like, before I get to pills, there's so many things you do in sort of lifestyle that directly impact. Like, yes. yo, if I sleep for two hours last night, I'm going to be clinically depressed the next day. I'm going to fix it when I sleep again. But I'm gonna, I, it's amazing. If, I'm, if I have half of the quality sleep that I need, I fucking hate the world. And, you know, I'm leaning more towards the other end of Camus' suicide question, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but it, it's sort of like, I guess, the, where is psychiatry at as mm-hmm. a place where I think now it seems like you have more time to talk to your patients. Like, my experience with psychiatrists, and is why I was so jaded on the profession, was I would go in there... I would say the exact sentences I needed to get what I needed and I would leave. And the mm-hmm. second one of them hassled me, I said, fuck this, I'm out, yeah. I don't need shit anymore. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, uh, so where's the balance between if a depressed person comes into your office, do you go, okay, um, and, and sort of side effects of that condition is they're going to sleep shitty, they're going to start not taking care of themselves, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, are the pills a crutch that allows them to address those issues? Is, is that why they're a first line of defense? Because that right. would make sense to me and that's something I've changed my mind on. Right. And so I guess first, I guess if we want to define like clinical major depression, major depressive yeah, disorder. I think we should, yeah. Yeah. Um, like there are very clear criteria. I th- you guys talked about it with, um, you know, Dr. Brad, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of weeks ago, but there's the, the DSM, which yeah. is the Diagnostic yeah, Statistical yeah, yeah. Manual, yeah. Um, which basically has all these different disorders and the criteria you need to hit them. So if we're going to have major depression, that is two weeks of at least depressed mood or the anhedonia, which is a fancy way of saying don't enjoy the things that you usually enjoy doing. Okay. So to have either one of those things plus four more of, you know, sleep changes, energy changes, concentration, suicidal thoughts, you know, um, motor like agitation or retardation, Mm. you know, there's like very clear criteria in order to like put that diagnosis down on the page. Mm -hmm. Um, to answer your question about antidepressants, you know, it's interesting because the, the, what I, one of the things that I love and find very interesting about psychiatry and mental illness that other people might hate is that, you really, we, most of these disorders are really like umbrella diagnoses. You know, yeah. there are it, like it's convergent phenotypes. So there are a lot of different things that can cause someone to have depression, to mm-hmm. look depressed, to be depressed, to have the, even that clinical depression. Some people can have everything going on in their lives be ex- like mm-hmm. perfect, you know, have all of their needs fulfilled, but it can be something just, like just a basic neurochemical imbalance in different areas of your brain that are causing this other people, you know, maybe they have lost their religion or lost their sense of purpose or lost their job, lost Mm -hmm. their job or have all of this stress from, you know, various things or, you know, uh, having like family conflict, you know, and if you have that over a long enough period of time, then that can lead to depression too. And so Mm -hmm. one of the things that I love about psychiatry and, specifically like about treating things like depression is that, that there are so many different causes and 
when someone comes in and they tell me they're depressed, I like to get an, an as thorough of a story, their mm-hmm. life story, as you know, I can have get them comfortable to share with me. Um, and that's one of the reasons, you know, psychiatry done well, you know, you're going to see the same person over time and they're going to really develop a sense for like who you are, your values, and try to help you get to the point where you can live those values. Do you and, find much resistance in opening up to you? Hmm. There's got to be. It really just, depends. Yeah. Yes. Especially in the situations that I currently am in. Is that in the county? Which is in the county system, especially when you're in an inpatient. In order to be admitted to my hospital, you have to be on an involuntary hold. So it's a 5150 hold? Yes, one of those. So there's three-day holds, 14-day holds, 30-day holds. And what's the difference between some... what? So what would lead to somebody getting a three-day hold versus a 14-day hold versus a 30-day hold? They're sequential. So oh, okay. basically, like, everyone starts on a three-day hold. And then if, if at the end of that, you have to extend you're not it. better, then you extend. At the end of that, not better, you extend. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And so imagine, like, the type of person that could end up in that situation. They're going to be very uh, re- resistant to authority. Resist- the vast majority of them have been there before. Fuck the police. You know, been in some sort yeah. of situation like that before. And the unfortunate thing about these situations is, you know, in the hospital, some of this medicine has to be paternalistic. It's the very nature of severe mental illness that you are pretty, you you don't have insight. You know, you don't really have great awareness of what's going on and that you have a mental illness and your brain is trying to protect itself. And so it doesn't want to believe that it has a mental illness. And so, you know, if you're, like acting super psychotic and you're endangering patients and staff, then there is no other option but to give you like an emergent sedating shot. And so imagine what it takes in order to actually do that in practice. Imagine you have like a large, like six, six guy who's like 320 pounds. Like literally the process is you call this team and it's the behavioral response team. And that's a, a night nice, nice they're, you know, they're the man out, the man yeah. handling team yeah. <laughs> and so the you know it, it literally is like okay you have left arm you have right arm you yeah. have left leg you have right leg and like you're like holding these people you, sometimes like they get held down mm-hmm. they can receive these shots it's extremely traumatic for them yeah. Yeah. necessary but traumatic and so these are the people that you're sometimes talking to and, and all they see you represent that group of people that did that to is them. the people exactly. the people that did the thing to me that I didn't like exactly and it's hmm. it's tough and i think a lot of this year for me has been how do i just socially exist within that and like build rapport you know ha- allow the patient to trust me kind of while you're you know, also on the side of the I'm, people yeah, that are calling exactly. the baby response and team. you know like yeah. we, we're both aware of this situation you don't want to be here i know you don't want to be here i know you really don't even want to talk to me but like how can we still hopefully try to do something for you and here's so th- there's a problem that seems to be much overstated in your life in both hayden and i's life like one thing and i haven't actually asked you about this hayden but so one, he's, he's he's very equipped to talk to me about whether <laughs> yeah or yeah yeah one, one thing like when you work with small companies like monthly revenue is such an important thing and there was in the past like something i really had to fight against was basing my mood off of like how the company is doing i mm-hmm. guess and separating yourself from the company to where yeah. Like, I am not this thing. How this thing is doing in a given moment is not me, and I can, Mm -hmm. you know, my mood can be independent of it. Um, 
I don't think I'm very far along in that process. I'm still very tied to it. To, and I'm always amazed. Like if you have a good sales day, it's like, I am so happy. And like everything's I, and, going and well. it was me. I'm so was optimistic about it. Work. Yeah, yeah. Because you'll work for two weeks and not see the result of something you did for, you know, and it's like you see it a month later and then I get to enjoy it. Right. But mm-hmm. um, you have much more significant traumatic experiences. Like we're looking at numbers on the screen. Right. But right. but you're looking at people who, which is really terrifying to me, are insanely mentally ill and don't know it. Right. It's um, one of the, I think, one of the hardest things about psychiatry. And so, you know, when we're talking about all the different medical specialties, you know, there are a lot of different options. And mm-hmm. one thing that people will say about psychiatry is, oh, like the hours are so much better than yeah. everyone else. Because it is kind of, if you imagine, like, At the it, we understand, too. like, balance is important to, like, mm-hmm. not being depressed. We are aware yeah. of that as, like, kind of a group of people. And it kind of shows in the way that we, like, have our careers. Yeah. That being said, it you have so much like emotional stress and like it's very difficult to hear these these stories like day in day out you know like i have been told countless times in the past like i've so many people have told me this year that like about them like experiencing sexual like abuse as like a child like so many really common and it's extremely common especially in this population you have to come face to face with how common it is exactly and so i'm sitting here like you're confronting it every single day exactly it's tough and um one thing that it it has made me is you become more empathetic with these people you know Mm -hmm. like oh like your dad was molesting you from like age three to 10 Mm -hmm. and you got into drugs because you felt so horrible every second of every day that you needed something to feel good. And then that's why you got into meth. And like, that's why you were already predisposed to mental illness, but now child trauma plus meth. Now you have florid psychosis in your twenties. Like, I'm not going to judge you for that. It's, you know, like you understand, you understand the inputs that lead to that. Exactly. It's really difficult. And you know, like they don't, they don't deserve it. They're Mm -hmm. just unlucky. And I think, um, so for me to stay sane amongst all of that, one is that recognition is like, there, there's a reason that these people are the way that they are and the way that the reason that they have to suffer through what they suffer through. And it's not my fault that Mm -hmm. that stuff happened. And, you know, another thing is like, my goal is to give them tools with which they can help themselves, but I can't control what they do when they leave the office. And I'll admit, this is something that I know is on the horizon. I haven't had to deal with yet. But when I was, you know, talking to some mentors about, you know, go, choosing the field, you know, they're like, there's going to come a point where you have to be okay knowing, like, you're going to have a patient walk out and then kill themselves someday. Yeah. Like, it's like, it's, it's probably just statistically, statistically yeah. probably going to happen. What, how do you feel about suicide ethically? That? Should Whoa. I go first? Well, it, so you can go first, but yeah. All right. I have some other follow-up questions. Yeah. Let's hear that. that. Yeah. Let's hear it. Oh, I don't want to take it in a, a different well, tangent. So Remember the, your questions well, yeah, really course, quickly. Yeah. Cause my, thinking, my thought it on it, I feel like in a vacuum suicide cannot be called ethically dubious. Like you, you have that freedom of choice if you're not affecting anybody negatively by taking that action. 
because now let's let's take it personally now. It's big if I cannot big kill myself if, because yeah. it would negatively impact people, and thus it would be a horrible dick move to do that, right? But if you were living a hermit lifestyle, if I had no friends off, and acquaintances, and so if you're if yeah. you're living if you're homesteading in Alaska by yourself and you've yeah. been doing it for six years, no human contact, and you decide, to and I'm going to die in forty years anyway, so I'll just do it now, right? And you're not negatively mm. affecting anybody. That's I, such a rare I, edge case. I, I really yeah. don't think. Yeah, that it, it is a super rare case, but it it illuminates sort of like. I think a flaw with how people look at it. Yeah, I guess that they, a minor flaw. They look at it as immoral or the easy way out. Yeah. I mean, it's tough because I mean, you're talking to someone who was raised in the Catholic, uh, with the Catholic faith, the and guilt, the, pro- the thing with that, guilt. Yeah. the thing with that is, you know, I can ra- rationalize away like all, you know, I can rationalize all this stuff away, but at the end of the day, like that does inform like a lot of my morality. Like it was set mm-hmm. in at such an early age. So, you know, if you're talking to someone like me, um, I. You, it's just ingrained that suicide, not so much that it is like something that is like wrong and that I should be blaming this person. Like, Oh, this person's so, so bad. It, I get it's more that it's, that it's it. more that yeah. it's like this thing that's worth trying to fight against, like at all yeah. costs. Like we should be trying to, um, you know, help these people not commit suicide pretty much at all costs. Even though like one thing that's happened this year is I've spoken to some people where it's like, you know, like I can understand why you are suicidal right now. And I can't really, blame you. Really like, honestly, life, like right? there can be like, very rational arguments for it, which oh, is yeah. why I don't think uh, this is sort of an yeah. enlightenment idea that I'm kind of against too, is thinking yeah. in everything in terms of rationality and logic. Yeah, like, no, 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 no. Yeah. It's tough. Cause I think one of the ways that, you know, I think about it myself is like in general, this person who is suicidal right now, we can achieve a state in which they would regret this suicide. Like that's what I keep in yeah. mind for like the, the vast majority of the people I see, like we can get you to a place where you're going to actually not want to have committed suicide, which is why it's so worth me putting in all my effort right now to help you not do it. Yeah. Because I know that we can get you to a point where life can be worth living in some way. Now the problem is, I'll be honest, like I've met some people this year with these stories where it's, it does seem pretty hopeless, you yeah. know, and yeah. with those people, it's tough. Because you, 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 you have to try and find something to live for, right? And you yeah. have to find some, a reason not to or do something Or even like, like you know, like euthanasia, you know, like how, yeah, you yeah. know, like if you're going to have terminal, this, like, terminally yeah, ill and like, you've got some horribly progressive we, like, disease. Oh, you have ALS and the way that you're going to die is that you're slowly going to not be able to swallow anymore. Like, yeah. it's really hard for me to sit here. But your brain's going to be perfectly fine the entire time. It's going to be hard for me to sit here and blame you for wanting someone to just wanting like to OD you on heroin to just like kill you. Yeah, it's hard I remember I brought up a book Conscious Robots wants to Hayden, mm-hmm. where the premise is basically, I don't want to go through the whole thing, but but one of the one of the takeaways was if your goal is to simply be happy and enjoy life, you should just become a heroin addict because you'll be happy all the time. Mm. You'll live in a state of Depends pure bliss. On your definition of happiness, <laughs> yeah. have a strong strong. Deny well, consider that. Take, a, take take out the are time. Are we talking equation. dopamine or yeah. are we talking happiness? You know. Well, like, this is the argument: is that humans aren't ingrained to be "quote unquote" happy. That's not the goal. the The goal is some sort of illogical sense that they'll reach a point of fulfillment at some point, right? Well, so um, that's the thing, and some drive that nothing. I mean, it kind of fights against the idea of Catholic yeah. heaven. Actually, this is yeah. the things my dad always said. Like. Uh, 
the concept doesn't make sense to me of like a Christian heaven because no matter what you make that place, I'm going to find a way to hate it after a month. <laughs> <Like>. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. I'm I mean, going to be like, you know what? I don't, I need more clouds. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm, I'm tired of this stuff, you know, like I want more fire. You know? So for our everyday listeners that are maybe driving in their car right now, listening to us talking, I know that there is, I roughly know I'm vaguely aware that there is a progression of suicidal ideation, suicidal planning, um, I'm sure you have exposure and training on because I know it's a I know it's a big step when somebody goes from talking about committing suicide to planning on it mm-hmm. and whether or not they have the tools or the opportunity to execute on that. Can you walk us through and the listeners through sort of what the progression of that is and mm-hmm. what sort of indicators are like? It's, it's almost like in, in in physical combat the escalation of force where mm-hmm. if somebody threatens if somebody makes a lunging somebody lunges at me I can defend myself in a particular way but if they lunge at me I can't take out a gun and shoot them and say that right. I was scared for my life it's a great so, metaphor and right. so I and so this is a terrible metaphor but I know that there is <laughs> I, a, like I, I, I know that there's an I know that there's a progression in terms of the seriousness of suicide right. and so if I'm an everyday listener what are the things I'm listening out for and at what point in terms of those alarm signals that I'm looking out for am I justified to make the next next escalatory step in, right. in protecting them so I think first if at any point you have a doubt about it and you have a gut feeling that there is something extremely wrong, you're at any point, at any point in that progression, it is okay for you to even at least just reach out to like a suicide hotline and like ask for help or to recommend to, you know, whoever that loved loved one is, that friend to recommend for them to reach out for help. Do you um, believe I at think, that point you have some level of culpability? What do you mean? Like responsibility for their life? I mean, you feel like you could have saved somebody and then yeah. you didn't take the action. Yeah, it's did. almost like you're doing it for yourself because like you're gonna have to live with guilty it conscience, day, whatever you, yeah. whatever you chose. Yeah, and so but, is that is that is that a thing then? Mm. If I'm worried about my friend, I can encourage them to reach out to the suicide hotline. Yeah, and then what if I they re- so. what if they refuse and they continue down the progression? They continue getting worse. They continue making more concrete plans. They they start the ten day mm-hmm. waiting period to get a handgun. Something right. along those lines. What right. do you do? So I would say. At least the the way the progression works, and one of the things that we'll do in the psychiatric emergency room, um, we see a ton of people come in with suicidality. So when they're coming in, we're trying to gauge like what is your actual risk? Like what do what is our gut feeling for how risk? What how how much actual yeah. true risk? If I discharge you, are you going to go kill yourself, or do you need to not be discharged? That's a good point. I feel like so, there's a Grand Canyon of difference between yes. thinking about it and planning. Oh, a hundred percent, probably. Yeah. Everybody's, Maybe everyone has at least yeah. like thought through like, dang, I wonder what if I died right now? Like, yeah. What would people do yeah. actually? Like, and like per- even just yeah. like, like not from like a like, oh, I'm sad, I want to die. It's, it's just like just like, huh, like what would your I, own funeral? What would yeah. happen? But but there's also that thing. I think it's well, it's it's well observed where it's the well, I could just hurl myself in front of this bus, or I could hurl myself. Do you off, know what they off, call off that? Of this balcony. There's a thing that they call call it, of the void. Call of the void. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's yeah. A, so, so that's a thing, and everybody's felt that. But when it becomes well, I'm going to wait until this time and I'm going to start planning. So keep talking through the the planning. So I think, um, you know, we can talk about passive versus active suicidal ideation, passive being um, statements like, you know, it'd be easier if I wasn't here. Like it would be easier if like I wasn't, if I didn't wake up tomorrow. Like I wish I didn't wake up tomorrow. Like Mm -hmm. why can't God just like not have me wake up tomorrow versus active being I want to kill myself, you mm-hmm. know, like I don't see a way out of this. Like I'm going to buy a gun and kill myself. And so I think 
passive. So I think first off, like if you notice any of those in your loved ones, I think they're all worth taking seriously. You know, um, it's really hard to say like, oh, this, you know, once they have like a plan that seems reasonable, that's the only time that you should reach out for help. You know, like I, it, it's too complex, yeah, um, too it, different per to and, each and, person. And there can't be a line in the sand where there's no there's no one size fits all solution right. or indicator. Right. And so I can tell you some of the warning signs that we will look for, um, you know, if they're making active statements like I want to actively like kill myself. Yeah. And then if they have an actual plan that they've thought out, then have they had self-harming behaviors in the past? Have they actually attempted suicide in the past? What did that look like? Like mm -hmm. they say they OD. Was that like, did they take 10 Benadryls or did they take like a whole <laughs> bottle of, yeah. you know, hydrocodone? Like, were they like, how serious was this? Did they actually like cut their, like, are they cutting themselves kind of as like a cry for help mm -hmm. or like to release endorphins or, is or it, like it was a yeah. deep and like they yeah. almost died. Yeah. Um, that type of thing. I also think that and then what do you, you do in each of those situations? If I, if I see somebody and they, they're going for the, and they, so let's say somebody goes from the, passive to active mm -hmm. and at the passive stage i recommended they get in touch with a suicide hotline and then it changes to active and then from active it goes to planning i think general generally once you get to like planning active and plan so if someone comes in with suicidality and a plan for me as the doctor that is a good enough reason to involuntary hold involuntary hold to keep them there and so okay. I, in my opinion if they qualify for that then they qualify for you to call, call am I calling nine one one nine one one, and that's you know it's, it's a timely you, it's yeah. a timely discussion right now because you know we've there's all this talk police, about police brutality yeah. defunding police you know should police who's the, who's the, the right doing yeah, this? and who's the right who's the yeah. who's the best equipped exactly. to go handle that call exactly. yeah, that is a big and ask yeah. to go handle a person oh, it's like it's tough that. it's really can unfair you, it's really unfair imagine? to expect policemen yeah. to yeah. be able to do that honestly. well yeah and the, and the amount of training that they get in mental health mm -hmm. there's also not there's no i don't even think there's a college degree i'm not sure if there's a college degree requirement to become a police officer there's 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 a training gap and whether or not they're equipped for that so what i will say is there are um, there are kind of like these like psychiatric you know response teams like that, soldiers yeah, yeah I mean kind or like yeah. the, you know they'll either they might send like a, a policeman but with like a social worker with mental health experience you know so if you're calling nine one one you're not necessarily like you the unfortunate thing is we can't really predict who you're gonna get yeah you know a lot of the time it's like who's available but like sometimes it might just be a cop sometimes rookie, it might someone so we rookie, gotta build a cop, team yeah. we have right. a psychiatrist we have a jujitsu expert yeah <laughs> and so for me personally if i was to have like a loved one that was making some of these statements that like i thought okay like shit's getting real now i would first be offer like will like look this is what i'm seeing i don't think that you will feel i like i truly think that you don't have to commit suicide right now. You will, there will come a point where you will be glad that you didn't do it. It might not be right now. And the whole nature of your depression is that you can't even envision getting to a point where like you'd be wanting to be alive, but you can. Or would you and ever so because say of like, that, just give me a month. Like just wait a month. If you want to do it after well, a month, it, you can. It, I mean, but do, let do, me do, have a shot. Do you approach it as a negotiation? So I would say, or I, do you I approach would first, it as a, you try and plant hope or remove remove right. the despair? What's the like? How do yeah. you? How, how are you? I going would ask about, him to come exercise tough. with it, me. It's really tough, and I think it kind of depends on the person. So because you have to know I'm, what what makes them tick, what motivates yeah. them. Yeah. I'm all about keeping trust in the relationship as long as possible. So like, especially with like the patients that I see. 
if I can get you on my side and we can, I can negotiate something out and you can agree with me, I think that's the best way of moving forward. Cause then, you know, you'll still talk to me. Mm-hmm. So I think that same way is like, if you can like, look, I will drive you to the ER and right, I, will, no. I, you know, and I, I just, this won't be permanent. Yeah. There's, how, there's no shame in this. Yeah, so how do you, how, cause you. I feel like there's, once you, once you activate that, it becomes a lot more real to the person. And then that activates, yeah. like you said, the shame portion. And so then it becomes a combination of reinforcing the seriousness of the situation a little bit and mm-hmm. knowing that there's a point where you're going to have to go around or over that person because they're either in a shame hole or they are going to say, no, we can't do that because then it'll wind up on my permanent record. My boss will find out about it. It'll Facebook will start serving me ads about this, um, whatever it is. And so at what point, and then I guess the real question is, is if I had a family member or a loved one who made a plan around suicide and they were saying, hey, I'm going to kill myself on Friday and I call 911, what do I say? What do I do? How do I make them take it seriously while also being fair to my friend, fair to myself and not overblowing the situation at the same time? I mean, I think you, you communicate. You just, you just you explain exactly worried. what's yeah, going on. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, you don't necessarily have to like give them the nitty gritty details about like, look, they're like Catholic and they lost their faith. <laughs> yeah. Like now they're just like strewn on this like floating rock with yeah, nihilism. You yeah. know, like you don't have to be like over. He moved to California yeah. at 18. Yeah. Last box of despair. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but, we're running up on time here, but I want to get to Wait, it. no, he has to answer the question. Oh, well, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Oh, I thought you said explain the situation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I thought he answered it. Go ahead. No, yeah, I mean, this is pretty much the answer. Just explain to them the situation. They'll probably, they'll like explain to you, like they'll ask your address. They'll ask you know, are there any guns in the home? Does the person okay. have any weapons? Are they, they, they might ask if they're like intoxicated. Do you know if they've had any, if they've had substances higher likely they, they tried to harm them? Have they tried in the past? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think in general, if you call and say that you're worried about like someone truly worried about for suicidality that they, you know, someone, they'll send someone, they'll out. someone to do a welfare check of some yeah. kind. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Okay. And then from that, the police officer or whoever the responding emergency response or emergency person is, they then have the right to do a, activate a 5150 hold, which is an involuntary hold, or they can try and talk them down. But I'm sure that there are also people who will have suicidal ideations or plans to a close loved one. And then as soon as an outsider shows up, they completely change. That's the tough part. They completely change who they are and say, no, that's bullshit. That person is making shit up. I didn't actually say that. I'm fine. Have a nice day. That happens sometimes. Yeah. And that happens sometimes. And 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 so then at that point, do you then, if you're, if you're the one looking out for them and they do it again, I mean, it turns, you call again, you call again, but then you worry about the boy cried wolf thing a little bit. And it's very, very, it's difficult. It's hard to know what to do. I mean, I think that just highlights it's one of the difficulties with the situation. Yeah. Like that's always going to be there. And with our current system, it, you know, yeah. it, it, it's You're not going anywhere people. anytime soon. Okay. Yeah. So, so I guess, yeah. the, so before we wrap up, the one actionable takeaway is if I'm distilling what you said, and please disagree with me if I'm wrong, is if somebody goes from passive, uh, so if somebody makes passive comments about wanting to kill themselves, not wanting to be around anymore, it's important to shine a light on, it's good having you around, try and reinforce that, try and address and approach some of the things that they're talking about. But once it makes that switch to becoming suicidal, active, planning, carrying something out, that then to not feel guilty or shame about escalating the support because right. it's okay to not know what to do in a situation. It's okay to ask right. for help on behalf of somebody else and to not feel shame about right. calling somebody else. Exactly. And it, it's extremely difficult. I've 
faced that exact situation with, you know, a friend and like all your concern about is like, they're going to hate you for a little while. They're yeah. going to hate you in this moment because yeah. you're doing something they don't want done to themselves. No one yeah. wants that. But in the long run, you know, try to imagine, you know, five hours, five days, five months, five years. And like, there's going to come a point where they're going to be, you're going to have saved that person's life mm-hmm. potentially. And you know, that's, any, that's more important than the short term right, and the, the short term, the anguish, short term. Yeah. You know, it's, it's worth going through that like short term pain. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to ask yeah. uh, uh, my last question is a very uninformed question, kind of yes. continuing on the theme of my general line of questioning. <laughs> um, electroshock therapy. I know many people see it as this barbaric tactic from uh, abusive psych hospitals of the mid 20th century. Right. But, I've seen a lot of like drastic turnarounds from it where it's been really effective just in like online anecdotes and stuff. What is the general consensus viewpoint on this form of treatment? So if you had asked this question when they were first discovering all this stuff, maybe like 70 years ago Mm -hmm. before they knew anything about the dosaging before they knew anything, you know, before they really had like like done enough of it. Electrical dosing. Yes. The electrical dosing, the like technique, where because to the stimulate whole, how long of a seizure you're trying to stimulate so basically mm-hmm. the whole thing with electroshock therapy is you're trying to stimulate a seizure mm-hmm. in the patient a controlled seizure um usually like these days like it's it, it's over within a minute yeah um and it's still something that's done. there's a lot oh it's one of the best treatments that we have Boom. for for what for major depression refractory yeah. major depression the no. data and for that data epilepsy uh, there are a lot right? of different yeah. things that it is helpful for um but the data behind electroconvulsive therapy is incredible and i yeah. guess that would actually probably be a good thing for like if we're talking about public education here ect is what i'm gonna so that's what i'll call it mm-hmm. extremely safe um extremely extremely effective now if you have a little bit of depression do i think you should go and ask for ect no but like the typical person who that's good for is someone who's tried six three four five six seven treatments you know they've been dealing with it for years and they're still debilitated i have seen you know someone who couldn't get out of bed for days get and you know was just the most like melancholy like down depressed person get one dose even one ECT treatment and like two hours later, she's like sitting there smiling and laughing. And, and that's it, from it one really, minute, it's from a one minute seizure. Yeah. And so wow. it really can be that drastic and it's incredible to see it happen live. Nice. And like, I had no idea before I saw, you know, like I would have probably, you know, thought like well, what you thought, you know, yeah. before I had any exposure, but um, you know, it's extremely safe, you know, when they do it, um, they'll have like an anesthesiologist there. You're, they put you under, yeah, not nice. awake. Oh, you don't wow. feel any pain. No, no, which no. wasn't the case. And so, yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. People screaming. Exactly. And, yeah. So like, so like they're yeah. giving you muscle relaxants so that, you know, they're causing a seizure in your brain, but you're not having like full body convulsions. You're not going to break an there's arm no tonic, or dislocate no t- tonic clonic phase. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Nice. 
Great. I got to confirm my opinion without having to do any extra research. That was great. Yeah. That's a, isn't that the point no, of a podcast? Yeah, no, that's, that's why we have a podcast. Big supporter of ECT. It's, it's an incredible go. treatment and it should yeah. not have the negative stigma that wow. it has in society today. The stigma comes from the fact that so many amazing One things uh, that we use. Yeah. Well, so many of the amazing things that we use now were invented in really barbaric, unethical yeah. ways. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Science yeah. in the 20th century was so free. You could do anything yeah. you wanted yeah. to people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's kind of a regrettable aspect. And I wonder if that will slow down progress that's but uh, that's a really deep uh, interesting question that we'll get to on Josh's next episode conversation <laughs> for another day yeah well thank you for coming on here this was a blast yeah, I know this is great I really enjoyed this it's been tremendous it's one of those ones I, I say this often when we have really insightful guests who have a lot of experience and expertise in areas that I'm not particularly aware of is that I often find myself for a few days afterward going back and re-analyzing re, re, re and so uh, just sort of re-looking at the conversation and having my giving myself the opportunity to go further down some of those conversation paths. I'm excited for where I'm going to continue going, for where all of our listeners will continue going, and we're looking forward yeah. at some point in the future circling back with you and answering some of my follow-up questions. Yeah, we'll have to have you on here for the Josh and Brad panel. That'll be a good episode. <laughs> Honestly, that would be pretty. <laughs> yeah. That'd be pretty sweet. Yeah. They're each gonna. That'd we're, be we're, pretty sweet. Gonna, we have dive. different perspectives <laughs> on, the, on the yeah. same picture. Yeah, and they're each yeah. gonna wear sock yeah. and bobbers. <laughs> <out there. laughs> There's gonna be a big fight at the end Perfect. of it, and by then, yeah. So. Perfect. Well. Uh, uh, I guess we'll take us out then. This has been Deus Life, an aspirational podcast, and we'll see you all next time. Peace.